and good morning everyone or good afternoon or good evening depending upon where you are in this rotating globe welcome to another edition of the other side of midnight that magical time between dusk and dawn when increasingly almost anything can happen well this morning we're going to be talking with someone that I've wanted to talk to about the big picture When I say big picture, I'm talking more than, you know, this solar system, this viral arm, this galaxy, even more than the local cluster. I mean, the big picture. And we'll get into the details and descriptions of what that means uh, momentarily. Um, My guest this morning is Dr. Michael Sala, who has been heavily involved in the foundation and creation of something called exopolitics. Now, I'm not sure, but I have a feeling that with Paula Harris many years ago, I may have given her the term and that kind of propagated because when I went back east with Robin several years ago to do lobbying on the Hill, I was lobbying very strongly for a new department, uh, a, a, a federal cabinet position. I wanted to raise NASA's profile because of the crucial importance of ultimately coming clean on all the extraordinary extraterrestrial intelligent artifacts that we've now found scattered all over the solar system. And so I wanted, you know, NASA is really only an agency and it used to be under commerce and I kind of lost track because they kind of moved it around in that uh, three-card Monty that they call the federal government. So I'm not quite sure under which cabinet position it's currently uh, residing, but I thought it would be interesting if in fact it had its own cabinet level um, position now administrations relatively recently the most recently George W Bush with the creation of the Department of Homeland Security can create through an act of Congress a new brand new never existed before cabinet positions and the, the the benefit of a cabinet position is you get a lot more attention you get a bigger budget, you get more attention politically, you're taken more seriously when you testify on the Hill in terms of budgets and programs and in years and out years and all that. So as space is going to become crucial, central to the future history of the United States, as you're going to hear uh, this morning, I was actually back uh, there with Robin some years ago, going from office to office, Senate office building, House office building, you know, senators, congressmen, visiting mostly Republicans because they controlled the House and the Senate in those years, arguing for a new cabinet-level relationship between NASA and the rest of the federal government. And I wanted to call it kind of mirroring the Department of the Interior, the Department of the Exterior. I mean, think about that. We're talking not only ancient artifacts and extraordinary technology and huge uh, opportunities and problems for national security, but we're also talking resources. We're talking mining. We're talking looking and and kind of, you know, deconvolving ancient technologies, stunning ancient technologies. I felt absolutely confident that at some point, I still do, NASA will be elevated as things progress as uh, Michael and I are going to discuss tonight. Michael will progress ultimately to the Department of the Exterior. So it was a small step, as I was talking 
with Paula one day to talk about, you know, the whole field of UFOs, which have gotten a really bad rep over the last several years, decades. And, you know, there's a lot in branding. There's a lot in a name. So I was suggesting that like I was, you know, trying to rebrand NASA as a cabinet level department equivalent to the Department of the Interior covering the solar system and beyond, the Department of the Exterior, that in fact, the whole field of ufology, of extraterrestrial relations, of all of that should have a whole new name. So it seemed logical, and I I, I believe I suggested to uh, Paula that it was uh, probably useful to think in terms of exopolitics as opposed to normal politics, and for the life of me, I haven't been able to run down an email or actually put it in print. So Michael and I can maybe argue about who came up with the term tonight, or maybe not. Uh, for those of you who are new to the show, let me tell you what we do. We do little news at the top before I bring on my guest. Tonight, of course, the major news is the tropical storm slash potential Cat 3 hurricane bearing down on Florida. And so the Artemis One managers, this will take you to the first news item tonight. And if you don't know how to get there, let me tell you. You go to the other side of midnight.com. That's our uh, URL. Click on tonight's banner, which says rather provocatively, UFOs over Ukraine, exploring a much bigger picture with Dr. Michael Sala. Click on that banner. That will take you to his guest page. Right under the guest page, you'll see where it says Fast links to items, uh, the banner at the top there. Click on my name. That takes you down to Radio with Pictures section of the page where my items are listed. Item number one is the latest information from the Artemis program at NASA headquarters. The Artemis managers, because of the impending hurricane, Hurricane Ian, which although when this was written, they were deciding whether to do the rollback, they're they're actually waiting till tomorrow to decide to roll this stack back. There are upsides and downsides to rolling the entire rocket, the SLS rocket and the Orion spacecraft on top of it, back to the vehicle assembly building, a several mile journey, takes them most of a day to do it. There are vibrations. If you don't want to, if you don't need to roll back, rolling back unnecessarily puts stresses and strains on the vehicle you know, wear and tear, every little thing counts. So you'd rather sit in place. The problem is that sitting in place during a hurricane, particularly if it, uh, the winds at the Cape are up around a Cat 1, uh, 75 miles an hour or greater, uh, you really don't want that. So they're looking very seriously at rolling back. They're in touch with the Weather Service, with the uh, um, Space Command, and the decision will be made tomorrow. At any rate, it looks like there's going to be a complete wave off of the launch opportunity on Tuesday on the 27th. And if they do decide to roll back, it, they may not even be able to make the October 2 uh, next window. So we will keep you apprised of all that. And you can find out what's the latest, even if we're not on the air, by simply going to link number one in tonight's Radio with Pictures. This week, far out in space, several uh, million miles away, around six million miles away, there is a stunning mission, a NASA mission, an unmanned mission, which is proceeding on Monday evening and around 7.14 Eastern Daylight Time, NASA is going to slam in an unprecedented fashion 
a very heavy spacecraft called DART, D-A-R-T, which stands for uh, double, uh, let's see, actually the acronym keeps, uh, keep, uh, keeps avoiding me. Um, it is called the Double Asteroid Redirection Test, D-A-R-T. And what they're going to do is try to move one asteroid that's orbiting a much bigger asteroid uh, so that it can be detected as an anomalous motion from the Earth. The technology is called kinetic impact, and it will all begin around 5 o'clock Eastern on Monday afternoon. That's tomorrow afternoon, culminating around 7.14 Eastern with the actual impact. Now, because the asteroids called uh, Didymos and Diamorphos, uh, parent and satellite, orbit each other every 11 hours, 55 minutes, because they're relatively close to Earth, only about 6 million miles away at this encounter, the speed of light time to bring the images and radio signals back from the spacecraft to Earth is around 38 seconds. So we will see this unfolding in almost real time. So you want to set your recorders to fast. You want to record everything because it's going to go by quickly. You're going to want to replay it. But then after the actual impact, there's going to be, I think, a 90-minute NASA TV uh, production uh, featuring the background of the mission, what they've intended to do, whether the impact actually occurs. It probably will. And then, of course, there will be a long period afterwards of many weeks and months of observation by ground-based observatories to see if, in fact, the impact on uh, Didymos, I'm sorry, on uh, Diamorphos, uh, which is a smaller satellite. The the big asteroid is around 2,500 feet across. The little satellite is around 300 feet across, weighing a lot, lot, lot less, so slamming a major spacecraft weighing, you know, like a thousand pounds or more into it at 14,000 miles an hour is supposed to have a detectable effect. However, things get really interesting when you start realizing what some of these so-called asteroids actually might be. Because we have data, very supportive, very strong, very uh, compelling data that NASA has been flying by Uh, a number of these objects and calling them asteroids when in fact they are neither asteroids or comets. They are ancient, long abandoned, millions of years old, ancient spacecraft orbiting the sun and or habitats, ancient super megalopical kind of cities, uh, space habitats of maybe several million people orbiting the sun. And so when you photograph them, as NASA has done, What you see is remarkable geometries that should not really be present if these are just natural rocks orbiting the sun, which has been the standard model for the last several tens of decades uh, uh, pertaining to asteroids orbiting Sol. Now, recently NASA rendezvoused with an asteroid called Bennu, and that's item number three, because among other things, they photographed it in exquisite detail, and there's a 13-minute video in item number three, which shows their touchdown and sample collection of materials retrieved from the surface of Bennu, which are now en route home 
by means of a returning spacecraft. And I believe they're supposed to land somewhere in Utah, I think sometime next year. I haven't checked the, the timeline on this, but relatively recently, those samples, which will be the first the U.S. has actually returned from an asteroid, will be on the ground and available to exquisite, very high-precision terrestrial scientific uh, analysis techniques, including mass spectrometers and nuclear uh, radioactive decay, isotopic measurements of time and age and all that, as well as very precise measurements of chemical composition and experiments looking for organics or uh, organic molecules, amino acids, and maybe even DNA. So that's all in the future. But if you look at that video, uh, which is item number three, and you click on it, about six minutes in is the actual slow motion video of the sampling that the uh, OSIRIS-REx spacecraft did when it did its so-called touch and go, where they hovered over the asteroid surface. They then fired thrusters to move toward the asteroid or down. They had a very long sample collection arm. And when the sample collection arm uh, touches the surface, all hell breaks loose. I mean, it's really astonishing to see all the activity in the relatively low, very, very low gravitational field of Bennu. Here's the problem. The way the DART experiment is designed to perform is that if there's an asteroid at some point in the future headed on an inbound trajectory to impact the Earth, the idea was that NASA would send one or more spacecraft like uh, DART uh, on intercept trajectories and by slamming into the offending asteroid either once or multiple times with multiple spacecraft at very high velocity, the kinetic energy transfer is supposed to basically shift the asteroid moving toward the Earth just a little bit. And that change of motion will change the time when the asteroid crosses the Earth's orbit. It only has to change it by a few you know, centimeters per second, if, if even less, maybe millimeters if there's enough time, and over a period of weeks and months, and sometimes, depending upon the asteroid, years, that incremental change due to the kinetic energy of the impacting object will be enough to change a collision with Earth and an asteroid to a miss, which, of course, is exactly what you want. The test of all that, the celestial mechanics, the energies, and most intriguing, the actual composition and surface texture of the asteroid are what the mission tomorrow afternoon is going to measure. Because the way these calculations work, we're assuming that there's hard objects. These are solid objects made of rock. And when you hit a rock, you know, it deflects because all the energy goes into changing the overall motion of the rock, not rearranging material inside. However, if you look at that Bennu video, when the OSIRIS-REx sample arm touched the surface, all kinds of incredible things happened, debris, chunks flying up, bouncing around, colliding. In other words, the surface of Bennu was not solid like a granite boulder, but it was basically a sea of unknown depth and unknown composition composed of separate objects that when you impart kinetic energy, 
they all bounce and bounce and bounce around and collide with each other. And instead of the energy going into redirecting the entire asteroid, it might be that Dart's energy is absorbed inside uh, Diamorphus like trying to fire a bullet pillowcase full of feathers. There wouldn't be much damage on the surface because the feathers would absorb ultimately the energy of the high-speed bullet. Well, suppose that um, Diamorphus is like Bennu and not a solid rocky surface or like a steel ping-pong ball in a pinball machine where collisions obey kind of, you know, action and reaction and geometry and angle of incidence equals angle of reflection and all that. Suppose, like Bennu, the energy of the DART spacecraft is merely engulfed and absorbed and redistributed inside. So, in fact, there's almost no, if any, detectable change in the velocity of Diamorphus around Didymos, the larger object, at all. What would that do to the mainstream models which say that these are just rocks orbiting the sun, origin about four billion, four and a half billion years ago in the so-called solar nebula. What if, in fact, Diamorphus and Didymos are, in fact, two very, very large ancient spacecraft derelicts, one orbiting the other, and when you impact DART into the satellite, the smaller object, the 300 you know, football-sized spacecraft, in fact, the energy will simply go to rearranging material inside, shattering rooms and bulkheads and all kinds of other junk. So ultimately, the change in velocity and thereby the change in orbit of Diamorphos around Didymos may be very small, much smaller than the models, or maybe not even detectable at all which raises a really interesting question. Is the DART mission of ultimately developing a system to protect Earth from errant asteroids, in fact, another NASA cover story? Are they, in fact, using a kinetic projectile, the satellite, the DART spacecraft, are they, in fact, performing the experiment to see by reaching out literally and touching at 14,000 miles per hour, the Diamorphos so-called asteroid satellite to see if in fact it's not a rocky asteroid at all, but in fact an ancient, ancient spacecraft. And that's why you want to watch very carefully, not just the event itself tomorrow afternoon or evening, on the East Coast, you want to watch what happens in the days and weeks and months afterwards, because my prediction is, if these in fact are two additional ancient spacecraft, like Bennu and Ryugu and the other objects that NASA and the other space agencies have just happened to photograph that do not look like rocks, then this could be a clandestine test to see if in fact these are really ancient derelict an extraordinarily old spacecraft. And we, who of course are not privy to what they're saying inside, will be able to tell the difference if in fact there's little or no change 
in the orbital period of 11 hours, 55 minutes, uh, around once, or diamorphos, if in fact it's much less than the 10 minutes on the solid rocky asteroid model. Now, that's not the only interesting thing that's happening this week. Um, on Friday, the Juno unmanned spacecraft, which has been orbiting uh, Jupiter for the last several years, is going to make a very close pass just a few hundred miles away of the amazingly interesting moon Europa. Remember, it was Europa many years ago that I predicted would have an under-ice ocean in print. Uh, 38, 9, 40 years ago, I forget how many years ago, which now, of course, NASA has ultimately confirmed. And in that ocean, there could be living life forms. We won't know until the uh, Europa Clipper mission gets there in the next few years and goes into orbit and actually sends a spacecraft down to the surface. But the Juno flyby, is equipped with instruments that in fact, through indirect remote sensing means, might be able to tell us if in fact there is life within that ocean beneath the ice and even what kind of chemistry that life could be composed of. And that's of course going to take place on Friday and over the next several months, the data will wind its way through the system and will ultimately be published. And so you're gonna wanna kind of keep a watch on that. So this coming week in space is very interesting, starting on Monday evening when the DART mission culminates in the hopeful to uh, the asteroid deflector crowd uh, redirection by about 10 minutes of the orbit of Diamorphos around Didymos, this twin asteroid. The, the names mean twins. So we will be watching very carefully. Item number four, as you obviously have been following, uh, the, the Ukraine war is not going well for Russia, and Putin's language has been, there now is a mainstream Russian television report that uh, uh, with nuclear war given, uh, everyone would be destroyed, and it's a very disturbing story. It's like there's more provocative language coming out of the Kremlin, coming out of Putin, coming out of the uh, Russian state television covering it than I have seen frankly, since the 1950s when uh, Stalin, you know, was in charge uh, as a prelude to uh, what came after. Item number five, the backdrop to all of this, of course, is there is an ongoing political process taking place in Washington, which is slowly putting in place apparently real structural political levers to bring disclosure of the so-called hidden UFO reality into public domain, into general consciousness, into government acceptance and admission of what they have been sitting on for the last 50, 60, 70 plus years. The author of this column in number five, who is a very mainstream guy, just go and look at his byline and look at the bottom at his credentials, he is proposing that because a very important political deadline is coming due literally on Halloween, that is October 31, 2022, just five weeks from tonight, that in fact this could be the year of the most astonishing October surprise of all. And what does he mean by that? Turns out that in the 2022 National Defense Authorization Act, 
This is the annual budget for the Department of Defense and all the other security agencies uh, that is voted on by both House and Senate then sent to the president for signature. Uh, Back at the beginning of the year, after uh, positive votes in both House and Senate, the NDAA for 2022 was sent to President Biden, and he signed it. In the current NDAA, which is huge because it covers, you know, like an $800 billion budget, almost a trillion dollars is spent by this nation every year on national defense. And we're not in a Cold War anymore. And there's no hot wars that are warranted for that level of expenditure. But the military-industrial complex must have its due. And so annually, we're spending almost a trillion dollars on defense. Two senators in the last NDAA, uh, Kristen Gillibrand and Marco Rubio, Democrat and Republican respectively, authored, co-authored a very extensive amendment to the 22 NDAA, which basically encodes in law a whole series of procedures for conducting open studies of unidentified aerial phenomenon, i.e. UFOs, and all kinds of other ancillary things that go with it, including trying to solve the question, who is building them? Are they ours or are they theirs? By theirs, I don't mean China, Russia, or Iran. I mean there's someone upstairs, someone beyond the earth. All of this in the first annual report mandated by the Gillibrand Rubio Amendment will come due, will become public on or slightly before Halloween of this year, just five weeks away. And that, in turn, is only eight days before the midterms, the major election for House and Senate, which is occupying everybody's political attention, both in Washington and all over the nation. Will the one, will the revelation of really interesting breakthrough information coming from the publication of this first annual UAP report mandated of the Pentagon by congressional action, will it in fact open up a Pandora's box of stunning realities and implications which could completely change the political tenor of the midterm elections. So far, the idea of UFOs and UAPs and you know further study and, and a Pentagon office devoted to all domain anomalies and things like that, it's been pretty uh, bilateral. It's been pretty even-handed Republicans and Democrats. No party has seen any advantage in terms of current information. If there are some really astonishing revelations encoded in the information that, again, by law, must be made public before Halloween, before October 31st, then just maybe this will be the beginning of some kind of, what should I say, um, effort to garner some kind of political advantage by one side or the other. There's no real way to predict this at the moment. They seem to be pretty fairly balanced between Republicans and Democrats concerned with these issues. And the national security angle was ever thus, 
uh, seems to be holding sway. So both parties are approaching this in terms of ultimate national security concerns, which are pretty bipartisan most of the time. However, depending upon the level of information that's revealed and the implications for further information, that all could change. So with that as backdrop, we're going to be talking with my guest tonight, uh, Dr. Michael Sala, who, as I said, was heavily involved in the creation of this whole new field of study called exopolitics. And until the, the break at the bottom of the hour, I think it's time to play Karen Carpenter, who kind of said it so well many decades ago. This is the ultimate hope of many following the UFO UAP controversy. Karen, give it a whirl. We shall return. In your mind you have capacities, you know To telepath messages through the vast unknown Please close your eyes and concentrate With every thought you think Upon the recitation we're about to Calling occupants of interplanetary craft. Calling occupants of interplanetary most extraordinary craft. Calling occupants of interplanetary craft. Calling occupants of interplanetary craft. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Your love. And one night will make 
And welcome back, everyone, on this Sunday night, September 25th, 2022. I mean, that really is the question, right? If there's a whole bunch of folks out there, and I think the evidence is now pretty convincing that there are, what is their relationship to us? I mean, most of the models that I've seen going back decade after decade is that, you know, you're dealing with aliens. They've never been here before. They wander by. They see this struggling, primitive, very warlike technological civilization bent on, you know, destroying as many of their neighbors as possible. And they kind of drop down to check us out and see if there's anything that they can learn or salvageable or whatever. And there's all kinds of individual encounters that are in the literature, UFOs that are stranded, UFOs that, that land and there's contact between individuals and the occupants of these incredibly flying vehicles. But there's never an admission that there's official connection between our governments on Earth and any of the individuals or governments out there, except kind of at the margins. And my guest this morning, Dr. Michael Sala, has been kind of devoting most of his uh, professional career to trying to sort out the real from the unreal at the margins. Has there been official contact? Are we part of some much extraordinarily larger reality where the real life, the normal, everyday, mundane politics and economies and even the warlike behavior of these fractions nations is all kind of a subset to a much grander picture, a much larger reality, and the two never meet. There's no missability between the larger extraterrestrial reality in which the earth is immersed and the everyday, ordinary, mundane, middle-class life that most Americans and now an awful lot of the world enjoy oblivious to the fact that there may be another reality. In fact, multiple levels of reality that are going on all around them of which they are totally, totally in the dark. That's the backdrop for this song. So without further ado, let me introduce my guest of the morning, Dr. Michael Sala. I have to do a couple things here, like change pots and change screens. And, you know, this is what they used to call being busier than a one-armed paper hanger. Dr. Michael Sala is an internationally recognized scholar in global politics, resolution, and U.S. foreign policy. He has taught at universities in the United States and Australia, including American University in Washington, D.C., and today... He is most popularly known as a pioneer in the development of the field of exopolitics, the study of the main actors, institutions, and political processes associated with extraterrestrial life. 
Michael's been a guest on more programs you can shake a stick at. He has an Amazon bestseller called The Secret Space Program series, which has made him a leading voice in the truth movement. And over 5,000 people per day visit his websites for the most recent articles and updates on the very subjects that we're going to be talking about tonight. So without further ado, Michael, come on down. Thank you, Richard, for that introduction. I'm really looking forward to the show tonight. Well, so am I, because I, I want to start at square one. I want to start with who is Michael Sala? At what point when he was growing up, did he look around and say, wait a minute, they're not telling me the truth? When was your moment of epiphany that changed the well, rest of your life? That happened in May of 2001. I was at the time a full-time professor of international politics at American University in Washington, D.C., and I saw the Disclosure Project press conference organized by Stephen Greer. And I, like many people, thought that the existence of extraterrestrial life was very likely and that they existed out there, but I had no idea that they were visiting the Earth and that was being covered up. And so uh, Stephen Greer had approximately 20 witnesses talk about what they knew directly. And when I heard that, I thought, wow, this is incredible. If this is true, that would change the field of international politics, which, of course, I was a specialist in. And... I was teaching graduate students. It was a, a master's level program, and these students were paying in excess of thirty thousand dollars a year. Oh to, my God! <laughs> Even then, that, yeah, they're, they're paying that much to get a master's degree in international peace and conflict resolution. So I thought it was natural that I would investigate whether or not this was real and whether it had any implications for the study of international conflict. And as so, I what, began, what, 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 this was what, 2001, you said? In 2001, yeah, middle okay. of 2001. And, and I actually introduced it into one of my courses at the time. Hmm. So, this was before 9 11? Exactly, yes. This was uh, in the middle of 2001. So, I, I watched. The uh, Greer's Disclosure Project press conference. I thought, well, this is incredible. I need to introduce this into, into my uh, teaching. And so I actually introduced it into a summer class that I was holding at the time uh, that began in June of uh, 2001. And I actually presented the Disclosure Project press conference to my graduate class. And I showed them one hour of the, the first hour of the show and then I asked the students, well, what do you think of this? You know, if you agree, let's form a line. And if you agree and that this is real, that there's a cover-up of this UFO phenomenon, you know, stand on the right side of the line. If you think that it's a, if it's total nonsense and there's nothing to it, then stand on the left side of the line. And if you're undecided, stand in the middle. Well, of that class of 25 graduate students, only two people thought it was real. The other 23 were either undecided or just thought it was a whole lot of baloney. And, and that really was a sign of what I was going to face from my academic peers and the students as I persisted in my effort to like study this UFO phenomenon. So did you incorporate any of the material we kind of 
call ufology into any of the uh, coursework that you were do, use, doing with these students? Yes, I did. I included it into uh, the curriculum of a, a course called uh, Theory of Conflict, Violence and War. Uh, so that for one week in that, uh, there were uh, 14 uh, weeks in that compressed summer course. And I talked to them about this UFO phenomenon and got their reaction to it. Uh, but then what happened was that I got a lot of pushback from the university that they that they did not want me to investigate this any further and and also that was a time of of a transition for me where I decided that well you know this is so important that I'm going to start to research this and so I'm not going to take on another full-time teaching load I'm just going to uh, be a researcher and so I made an arrangement with the Center for Global Peace at American University to give me a uh, an appointment, a 12-month appointment as uh, a researcher in residence, which was kind of like a, um, it wasn't a full-time paid position. It was just a researcher status at the university, which would enable me to kind of like find what it was I wanted to do because I was an international relations scholar that's what my degree was and all my publications and research was in international relations. And here I was kind of like caught in the middle of this phenomenon of UFOs and trying to work out, well, is this real? Is this something I should talk about in my classes? Should I introduce it to the university um, studies? And so though we decided that, okay, it would be best for me to just start this uh, position of a researcher in residence which would enable me to renew my visa because I was uh, I'm a foreign national in the United States so I have to have I had to have a, a visa every year renewed so that I could be legally in the United States and so that's what what, what we did with the university so I then be beginning in uh, on September 1st of 2001 I'm a, a researcher in residence and now I'm looking at this UFO phenomenon as a, a kind of full-time researcher while being within the Center for Global Peace. Hmm. So when you presented this to your students, did you, did you simply present the, the, the uh, government data, uh, Project Blue Book, some of the other studies, uh, the APRO and MUFON and all that, or did you delve at all into the potential political structure of extraterrestrial entities that might in fact be secretly clandestinely interacting with the governments of earth how far did you take it to begin well i just showed the students it was a two-hour class and the first hour i just showed them the video the first hour of the disclosure project video that was shown at the national press conference in may of 2001 and the second hour, we discussed it, you know, whether or not this was truly a phenomenon that was underway and the UFO issue was being covered up. So we didn't go into that because, quite honestly, at that time, I, I had no idea about the history of ufology. I mean, all I knew at the time was that, you know, there were these 20 witnesses that were part of a press conference where they discussed this cover-up of UFOs. And I thought, wow, this is incredible. This needs to be looked at closely. And so that's when my journey began. And really, it's, 
even now, I mean, what are we talking? Twenty-one years later, <laughs> I'm still still on that journey. Okay, so how long did you teach this this course? Uh, I began teaching uh, courses at American University in uh, 1996. So, well, no, I'm, I'm I'm talking about the UFO thing in 2001. How long? Uh, did, how long did that course go on? Uh, it was just one summer course in 2001. And after that, I then reverted to a, uh, a full-time research position. So I stopped teaching courses because I wanted to focus on research. Okay, so see, this is where I'm heading. You did a poll at the beginning, and you had like 28 students, and only two really took it seriously, and the rest were either undecided or, come on, you got to be kidding. Did you do a similar poll after the summer course with the same students? No, I oh, never did darn. that. Well, I mean, they, they, they at the, they just watched the disclosure project press conference that happened earlier in May of that year. Right. And so, I, that was just one week out of a fourteen kind of week course that was compressed into a summer course. So I didn't have that opportunity to do a follow up. And, and I didn't teach that course a second time, which would have been interesting if, if I did, because then I could have asked again, see what the what, if there were any, was any change. Well, yeah, if you expose students to new data, one of the criteria of teaching is that you have an effect, that you, you, they, they will learn something and they will put aside their biases and try to look at really interesting information, even if it conflicts with what they already think they know. And you didn't get any data on on the impact of the course on those students, I take it. Um, not other than what they had to say immediately after watching that one-hour video of the Disclosure Project press conference. So you did your poll before you showed them anything? Oh, no, I did the poll after I showed them ah, the okay. one-hour uh, segment. So, you know... Uh, they they went into this cold just as I went into this cold because it was it was fresh it was quite new I mean we're talking about me teaching a summer course at American University in June of 2001 only a month after the disclosure project press conference was held at the National Press Club, press club in Washington D.C. so it was all very new to me. I, I had no history in ufology, absolutely had no idea who Stanton Friedman was and <laughs> had no idea of, you know, who was Richard Hoagland and the monuments of Mars and the Viking. I had no idea of all of that. I was just a, a conventional scholar that was like, well, these people, they strike me as telling the truth that there's this cover-up going on and I so need to really learn more about of, it. You really kind of exemplify the concept of the ivory tower. You were in your tower and nothing else was kind of important. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it truly is an ivory tower it, it, because I, like all of the others in the ivory tower, you know, we are told if you want to get uh, a full-time position, if you want to get, uh, uh, if you want to get promoted, uh, if you want to advance, then you've got to only cite peer-reviewed journals and read books published by academic presses. If you start reading books that are published by uh, popular publishing houses or uh, start citing articles that do not come from peer-reviewed journals, well, that's your 
uh, you're going to sacrifice your academic career. So yeah, the ivory tower, you know, those are the walls, peer-reviewed journals and mm. academic publishing houses. Okay, so the summer of 2001 is over, 9-11's happened, you decided to become a teaching, uh, I'm sorry, a, a research assistant as opposed to a, a professor or teacher at the university. Kind of share your learning curve. As you got into this, what were some of the high points that made you realize, wait a minute, there's something really interesting going on here that we're not being told about? Well, I mean, I realized that at the very beginning when I saw the Disclosure Project press conference that something is being covered up, uh, that this UFO phenomenon, there's something to it. And the more I researched it, the more I started to peel back the different levels of the onion and uh, I was just amazed at the, the level of how far this goes. And and the more I dug into it, the more I realized that there was a whole secret world that dealt with the extraterrestrial phenomenon. And it wasn't just UFO sightings. It was full-blown meetings and negotiations and agreements being reached with extraterrestrial visitors yeah and and that was like the my steep learning curve that it went far beyond just you know lights in the sky ufos are up there and holy cow they're real it went into yeah they, they're meeting the, the the pilots of those craft which are landing getting out and meeting with military and government officials and so reach- so you discovered that through sources and we'll get to that in a second that there was a real three-dimensional interaction between a civilization or civilizations upstairs and governments and civilization here on Earth that, again, has been incredibly effectively isolated from everyday, normal, mundane reality for 99.99% of people all over Earth. Totally, exactly, yes, that there, there has been this ongoing set of interactions with the pilots of the of those craft extraterrestrial pilots of those and and that what we are observing is the product of a rules-based system that the the occupants of those ufo craft are observing certain rules in terms of how they interact with the primitive species like earth uh like human humanity that we don't have uh, you know, one mile or ten mile long motherships suddenly appearing and hovering over major cities, and it's like, well, why is that? If like, this like, going... like, like an Independence Day. Yeah, exactly. So why is that? Why aren't they doing that? Because their technology is so much more advanced than ours, and it's and they've been doing this since we know, uh, you know at least going back to the 1942 Los Angeles air raid. Then why don't they just appear? Because uh, this is the rules-based system that they operate under, that they have a certain, whether we call it the prime directive, that they can only operate under certain guidelines, and, of course, they are meeting with and negotiating Well, let me, let me, let me stop you there, because a lot of people, particularly as more and more people are turning to the idea that this weird, flaky, off-the-wall stuff is real, which really boggles a lot of minds, they're, they're looking at government as the problem. Oh, these guys are not telling us the truth. These guys 
have been lying to us. It's under their control under the First Amendment or under the Constitution to make this reality part of our reality so we can make intelligent political decisions. And they're not loving us at any level. I, I, I want to back up and kind of look at this from 30,000 feet. Is it your position that the cover-up beginning most recently from 1947 onward was really in the hands of the extraterrestrials and at no time is under the purview or aegis of any terrestrial governments? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Uh, Definitely they have the power to suddenly reveal themselves in in their craft, Uh, but to do so other than just allow their craft to be photographed and people then debating whether or not this is a genuine phenomenon or not. And that appears to be something uh, indicating that, you know, they, I think there's two kind of like answers to that. One is that their, their own terms of engagement or their, their own prime directive in how they interact with a less developed species such as humanity. And secondly, how our governments and militaries have communicated and negotiated negotiated with the visitors exactly how they should behave in terms of revealing themselves with the rest of humanity. If I understand you, you're saying that the extraterrestrials have a stake in not letting most of the planet know that they're here. And the governments of Earth have a co-equal stake in participating and aiding and abetting in the cover-up so their own citizens don't know that this reality is going on. So basically, the only folks that are not in the loop are the people on Earth who pay all the bills to make any governments work anywhere on the planet. That's exactly right, yes. Uh, We're talking about the extraterrestrials themselves, the uh, national security officials, typically from the Department of Defense and the intelligence community who lead these negotiations, they're in the loop. Uh, the rest of us, uh, those in the, uh, in the, especially the elected representatives, they're kept out of the loop, aside from the heads of the defense and the intelligence committees. Uh, we're talking about the, the ranking member and the chair of the defense and the intelligence committees in the House and the Congress, uh, in the House and the Senate, they know they've been briefed to a certain extent, but everyone else in Congress has no idea. They're not read in. So yeah, by and large, the U.S. Congress, as well as uh, the mainstream media and the rest of the public, has no idea that there have been these agreements reached between the military intelligence community and the visitors. So it's in the interest of both parties, and I'll use governments of Earth to represent one party and extraterrestrials as the other party. It's in their interest on both sides to keep most of us dumbed down like mushrooms in a basement eating you-know-what so that there's no real pressure from governments of Earth to represent their citizens and open the door on this reality. Is that a fair statement? Well, yes, I think on on the part of the extraterrestrials, I think that they have done what they feel is 
the responsible way of doing things. Well, now, let, to, let, me, let me stop you there because you say qualitatively, I think, I believe. Don't we have data? See, if we're dealing with real politics, politics is always self-serving. Politics start with what's good for my side and that I can get the other side to agree to. So if we, if we basically take Gene Roddenberry and the prime directive out of the equation and we look at extraterrestrial entities, governments, individuals, institutions, whatever fraction uh, is going on out there in terms of multiple species, multiple planetary systems, you know, galactic councils, but whatever the, the governmental structures that we're interacting with are, how do we know that their hands-off approach is in fact uh, beneficent, meaning for our well-being, and not frankly, to better allow them to exploit what is going on on Earth, which is an incredibly primitive situation, both technically and politically, culturally and morally, compared to what could be going on out there? Well, I would say it's a kind of like a deductive argument that we look at they having this advanced technology enabling them to travel from a different solar system light years to the Earth and then not revealing themselves to the rest of the planet. That Why, why, why would they do that? Why would they travel light years displaying a technology way beyond our present capabilities which would enable them to essentially take over the planet at a heartbeat but not reveal themselves publicly. Well, you know, the, I think the, the answer logically is that they have reached agreements with our military intel, intelligence or, leaders. Or we, humanity, all 7 billion of us on Earth, possess something that they need, not physically, but at some other level, some other, I'll use the word dimension, some other capacity that they do not have, and by revealing themselves en masse, they would destroy the very essence of that which they need from us in our unawakened state. 30 has, seconds. Has, has that ever been discussed? Uh, well, I know that one of the things that apparently they're very interested in is human genetics. I mean, the abduction phenomenon verifies that, so then would they interfere with our genetic evolution if they openly reveal themselves? Okay, hold, hold it there. We're, we're at the top of the hour. My guest this morning is Dr. Michael Sala, and we're grappling with what to me has always been the most baffling part of this whole conundrum. And Michael said it. He said, you travel light years or thousands of light years, you come all the way to Earth, and then you skulk around in the shadows, and you deal with a tiny handful of the representatives of humanity and you get from them something like agreements but agreements due to what certainly not to reveal yourselves as one people openly expressing interest in another people at a common ordinary human or extraterrestrial level you're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return.
theothersideofmidnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hoagland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, on this Sunday night, the 25th of September, 2022. My guest this morning is Dr. Michael Sala, who started out a very mainstream, very squeaky clean, professional kind of guy, made a university, teaching classes, studying international relations. And slowly but surely, he walked his way to the edge of the cliff and jumped off and is now immersed in a totally different level of reality that most people who have not followed this show or most shows like this would obviously, uh, you know, call the guys in the white coats for even proposing that there's any level of verisimilitude to these extraordinary claims. But in fact, these two realities are so immiscible. They do not penetrate. They they do not penetrate mainstream news or mainstream politics or the day-to-day give and take of political, you know, remember Tip O'Neill, all politics is local. Well, there aren't local UFO guys dropping down and interacting with local governments and offering technology to, let's say, treat the water systems in this town or change the pipes for better technology in, in Flint, Michigan or whatever. It's like these are two bubbles that never have interpenetrated except for individual, very isolated incidents. And then, of course, there's this whole idea of clandestine, high-level government-to-government negotiations where the duly elected representatives of one government, namely ours, the U.S. government, do not tell their citizens by whom they are elected and from whom under the Constitution they derive their ultimate earthly power that any of this is even going on. Uh, Michael, let me ask you, I want to kind of try a learning curve here. How did you get from the position of knowing nothing about any of this to the position tonight that there's this extraordinary multi-leveled, multi-dimensional reality of which 99.99% of people on earth are kept deliberately, totally in ignorance. And do you think, I mean, you mentioned the uh, Roddenberry Prime Directive, do you think that it had anything to do decades ago with something called the Brookings Report, 
which was a uh, a high-level think tank in Washington, the the Brookings Institution, uh, commissioned under a NASA contract when NASA was first formed in the summer of 1958 by President then Eisenhower, that basically came out with a document in-house that ultimately wound up in the the U.S. House of Representatives and ultimately published as part of the congressional record, which basically said that if humankind – knew that we were not alone for a variety of reasons we would wind up destroying ourselves and ending civilization and do you think that document that perspective that political position um has had major sway at least from our side government officials over and over again refusing to bring this reality into ordinary everyday affairs well, the Brookings Report was definitely a very important document in my journey. And you know, just to repeat, in May of 2001, when I was introduced to this, I was totally green. I had no idea what ufology was all about. I'd never studied it at all. But all of a sudden, it was kind of like these 20 witnesses are saying that this exists. So I spent the next 20 months, basically, close to two years, just looking what I could, you know, kind of like doing the equivalent of field research, because, you know, how do you do field research in ufology, uh, in trying to find out whether any of this is is really, uh, what I did was I interviewed people and I looked at whatever was available in terms of, um, you know, internet testimonies of people. I was a field researcher. I had traveled to places like Kosovo in uh, the former Yugoslavia, East Timor, uh, Sri Lanka, and I was I was used to travelling to these places, interviewing people, and finding out what was going on. So I tried to do the same with this uh, UFO movement, and, and my approach was kind of like um, non-conventional in the sense that I, I didn't start off by looking at these classic documents like the like the Robinson. Uh, panel of the Durant Report or the Brookings Institute, I first started started by kind of looking at what these different witnesses had to say because that's that was my training. You know, you look at you know what are the the people that are, are being persecuted in these ethnic conflicts in different countries. Well, what what do they have? Yeah, to so say? it's it's on the ground uh, field research. Yeah, exactly. So that's what I did uh, for for 20 months, and once I realised that this is very real, that this was not pie in the sky, that those 20 people were absolutely correct, that this was happening at the highest level. And that... okay, let, let me let me stop you there because one of the big problems that I try to grapple with with this show, and I'm been trying to get some professional assistance from actual epistemologists, is this whole idea of how do we know what we know. And when you're dealing in an area of incredible political controversy and fractionation and folks involved in cover-ups and suppressing the truth and disinformation, it makes it it, it's so not like science uh, I was ever taught, and obviously you were taught either, that it makes it almost impossible without an extraordinary level of effort to counterbalance and check the veracity of any individual witness or story. So how did you go from being, I would presume, skeptical to being uh, very believing in a whole series of impossible things before breakfast, as the White Queen in Alice in Wonderland used to say, 
And what was your journey? How did you how did you figure out how to test the unbelievable things that you were encountering? Well, I just talked to people who were part of these programs or that had some kind of unique insight into it. I mean, we're talking about the people that were uh, witnesses uh, in the Disclosure Project press conference that they would say that you know, they worked for NASA or they worked for the Pentagon and, and that they, you know, look, for example, Donna Hare and Carl Wolf say that they saw these pictures of structures on the moon and that they were told that not to reveal anything about this otherwise you know their very lives would be threatened so i would look at these kinds of testimonies i would ask others about them and say well is this really happening you know do people get threatened if they talk about this do people get killed if they if they uh speak out about any program that they're involved in involving this UFO phenomenon and the answers I was getting that there's the absolutely yes this is the highest level of national security and and people will be killed and so there were documents like uh, the uh, that the uh, so wait, 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 wait. if people are really feeling that threatened then how come they would talk to you how can they talk to other authors and writers and you know I've talked to them and in other words if there is this ironclad dome between reality and fiction, how does anybody, if they're terrified of being killed, have the courage to speak? Yes, that's a, a very interesting one. Well, these people sign non-disclosure agreements, and so they're very careful not to reveal anything that they directly witnessed, and so they might talk around it. Now, in some cases, uh, people... Uh, talking about things that they agreed not to talk about in, in terms of they're, they're violating their, non, their non-disclosure agreements. And this was something that uh, Stephen Greer, he had legal counsel, Danny Sheehan, who advised people that because the programs that they were involved with were not done in a legal way, that any NDAs that they had signed were null and void. And so some of the people... So wait, wait, are you telling me they were more concerned about legal liabilities than they were, you know, being physically threatened with life and limb? Well, I think it was both. I mean, they definitely felt that if they went too far in terms of violating their uh, NDA, that, uh, yeah, they they could they could uh, be physically eliminated and, and certainly that but did happen. But how do people make that decision? Because if someone basically says you open your trap and you're dead, how do you know how to walk up to the line but not cross it? Yeah, I guess that was the, the question each of those witnesses had to answer because on the one hand, Stephen Greer and, and, and Daniel Sheen were telling them, look, these programs are illegal, they circumvent prostitution, you know, you, you can talk about this and you are relieved from any kind of responsibility that you have from signing that non, non-disclosure agreement. And, and then you have the people who enforce these non-disclosure agreements and, you know, we don't know exactly what they would do. Um, you know, in some cases, maybe they would like not do anything in other cases they might take action but i think stephen greer and danny sheehan they they were on the record saying that everyone that they 
encouraged to come forward and reveal things that none of those people were persecuted. So it seems that there was high-level support within the military for this process. You mean there is factional infighting among the cover-up crowd with one side saying nothing gets out and the other side saying within these institutions uh, it, 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 it's time to, to basically reveal this. Exactly. I think a compromise was reached between two different factions within the national security system. One faction was, look, this has been kept secret for over 50 years. Let's let the people know. And the other faction saying, no, this secret is just too precious. We can't scare people by revealing all this. We want to keep we want to keep the lid on the whole thing. Well, did, so, you, did, you hear, did you hear the story about John Alexander? You, you know who John Alexander is, right? Yeah, Colonel John Alexander. Right, right, right. You know, the, the non-lethal weaponry and all that, uh, based, I think he's in Nevada. He, uh, he was talking to someone, I forget the actual context, but he's been involved in the high-level briefings at the Pentagon. <clears throat> and one day, he's briefing a bunch of PhDs, apparently, on, uh, uh, you know, UFO realities. And there's a uh, secretary or deputy secretary of defense who's chairing the meeting. <clears throat> and John is going through his, you know, backgrounder, and the BHDs are all kind of, you know, kind of like you. They're good grief, this is real, that kind of thing. And apparently, this undersecretary of defense suddenly gets up, pounds the table, and yells at John, "How do you know this? This is the kind of stuff you're not supposed to know till you die." Well, John Alexander is a very interesting uh, character. I mean, you think? Uh, he, he, yeah, he kind of straddles this this dividing line between you know those wanting to reveal what's going on and those wanting to keep a, a, a lid on it all. And um, yeah, uh, I, I think he has revealed some stuff, but on yeah, the but other but hand, Michael, 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 it, this to me this has always been very puzzling because if you've got a conflict between the cover-up crowd. For eternity and the limited hangout crowd you know using terms from the nixon administration and haldeman at some point if you pull on that thread of the limited hangout there's no such thing it will all ultimately come out the only way to preserve ignorance on the part of most people is to never admit anything anywhere anytime it's an iron dome it's an immiscible barrier. It's a solid force shield. There's no break ever. You deny, 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 deny. And if there is some kind of a rapprochement, if there's been some kind of a, uh, an agreement, uh, a compromise, what does that compromise consist of? Well, it consists of people who have been involved in these programs coming forward and talking about it, even if it violates their NDAs, without them being punished, without them losing their pensions, being harassed or being eliminated. And I think that was the compromise. And, and Stephen Greer was very successful in getting um, as many as 300 people who worked in various government corporate programs, many of them who had signed NDAs, to go on the record 
give video testimony saying that yes, I was part of this program and yes, there was retrieved extraterrestrial spacecraft that we studied and this is what we did. And, and the compromise was that people could come forward and talk about these, but they would not be allowed to have any evidence, that there would be no physical evidence, uh, except for some very few cases, such as uh, John Callahan, who uh, was the uh, one of the uh, heads of the FAA, who did hold on to some of the evidence, and he actually shared that at the press conference. But there, he was one of the very few cases of some of these witnesses who were allowed to come forward and share, but of course, all the others, you know, they didn't have anything like John Callahan did. So you're saying that from the beginning or in the beginning, it was total secrecy, right? Yes, that, and and we know that uh, that that was the Canadian Transport Minister uh, uh, Wilbert. Wilbert Smith, I mean, he said and he confirmed when he, uh, on the part of the Canadian government, went down to research the flying saucer issue as it was known at the time. And he found that the flying saucer issue had a higher security classification than the hydrogen bomb. Amazing, amazing. Which, of course, is now sitting somewhere at Mar-a-Lago. That's a conversation we'll get to in a few minutes, okay? So let me go back. So in the beginning, it was total secrecy, deny, 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 and the Richardson panel kind of codifies how and why that all took place in, what, 53? And then at some point, there is a decision reached, a compromise, a rapprochement, to use the French term, between the complete cover-up crowd and the limited hangout crowd. And then there is a kind of a negotiated settlement to where we're put on a path, I call it the time release aspirin path leading to disclosure. And do you think, this is a $64 question, do you think tonight we are there? Yes, there was definitely a a compromise, a way in which these two factions were able to agree that, okay, we can allow this, but not that. And and I, and I would say that uh, Colonel Philip Corso's book, The Day After Roswell, that came out in 1996, that that was actually a product of this compromise, that, that the colonel, I mean, he knew, he knew where the bodies were buried, but he did not give the hard evidence to support his incredible testimony in that book. He just provided... You know, some documents that, yes, he was a, a lieutenant colonel and he served in, in various positions and, and, and worked with uh, Lieutenant General Arthur Trudeau. And, and so he provided that kind of documentation, but nothing to substantiate his involvement at the highest level of the policymaking process. So that was the compromise. And, of course, after, after Colonel Corsa, you had many others coming forward again, sharing what they knew, their little piece of the pie, but without any documentary evidence to support that. And now, here we are today, where all of a sudden, this has been elevated to a national security issue that requires congressional action. Well, we're literally five weeks away, as I said in my news segment tonight, from an official congressional report, which is going to blow the doors off so much that the details are almost less important than the gestalt in that official government documents 
witnesses, testimony, evidence, research studies. It's all going to, even if some of it's classified, there'll be enough of it that will reach public domain that it will have, I would imagine, an extraordinary effect on the majority of the population. And the li- we can literally you know, take a stopwatch and click it and say it's five weeks and counting. On yeah, Halloween that's... of 2022. So let me go back to my first question. Proshmop, this, this compromise, do you think it was organized merely by terrestrials, meaning humans here in government, military, whatever, or is it in fact a timetable being dictated by the folks we're dealing with upstairs? Oh, that's an excellent question. Uh, I think it is uh, a timetable being dictated by those upstairs that you know they say, well, your population needs to know about this, that there are certain solar system-wide events that are coming and you have to get ready for this as a planet. And so there is a timetable and I think that this compromise that was reached was because there was pressure being exerted on them by the extraterrestrials themselves. Well, look, look, it goes back to that cliche, you know, you don't tug on Superman's cape and you don't spit into the wind. If an ET with a mile-long battle group that can hover over D.C. like Independence Day says, you will do this, this, and this on this time frame, I mean, you don't ask how high you jump. You just jump, right? Well, I think so, yes. I think from the perspective of the national security officials who are in awe of the kind of technologies that the extraterrestrials have, that they they probably realized that you know they they had to work with the extraterrestrials with whatever timetable was available now i I think you know we need to consider that you know this goes back i i believe to 1942 in terms of having talk about 1942 because when i read bill tompkins uh three volume set which uh a very devoted uh colleague and friend of the show you know actually bought me as a as a kind of a uh, late birthday gift, and I've been devouring every page and the footnotes and all that. And we'll, we'll talk about uh, uh, William Tompkins later on in the show. The gestalt I got from that was there was this en masse effort in 1942 over Los Angeles to make themselves, whoever they are, readily available to thousands, tens of thousands of people, and it all fell like a stone into a swamp. Nothing ever happened, even though there was this extraordinary mass demonstration over the second most populous city in the United States during the middle of the beginning of World War II. Can you kind of go into the details and how does that paradox get solved? Well, something very significant did happen. Uh, The event itself, of course, as you say, um, the public saw it they were astonished for uh you know for a day or so in la then, in the la basin exactly so yeah there was this uh phenomenon on the on february 25th of 1942 where they saw what appeared to be a, a very large ufo with uh, some smaller ufos around it like a mothership and its um craft associated with it flying around the la and there was this artillery barrage launched against it and then the next day the cover-up began and because 
the United States was in the midst of a war, you know, that was forgotten by the public. But as far as uh, well, let me stop you there, because if you know, one swallow does not a summer make, was one of my old grandmother's sayings. If you're really an extraterrestrial civilization, and you're determined to come out of the closet and make yourself known to the nation or to the planet, one event, one night over a populated city, if it can be covered up in the mass media the next day by the military, by the State Department, by the local authorities, whatever, does not a revelation make. So was it intended to actually reveal themselves to everybody or, this is this dual track that I'm following now, was it basically a tour de force of sheer raw power for the military of the United States to realize if they opposed these folks, they didn't have a prayer? Well, William Tompkins had a, a, a kind of different take on it, and he said that this was a gift to the US military, that what happened was that uh, that artillery barrage that the extraterrestrials or the, the, those, the occupants of those ships allowed two of their craft to crash and be retrieved by the Army, Air Force and by the Navy. And that's when the whole reverse engineering program began. And, and you have uh, Bill Tompkins talking about that. You have these leaked majestic documents that talk yeah, but about... Wait, 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 let me stop again. You can do all that without having a mass demonstration. You simply crash land or fake it or however you want to stage it on two Air Force bases or a Navy base and an Air Force base. The public doesn't know a damn thing to do a huge visible demonstration in the skies over L.A. that takes place over an entire night did not stop until dawn with searchlights and artillery and explosions on the craft that have literally don't even make a dent. And then there is one craft found off Catalina and one uh, somewhere inland that looked like they were deliberately given to the military. But in other words, it seems to me to have nothing to do with mass consciousness. It has to do with appearances for the military industrial complex of 1942 as a extraordinary demonstration of sheer power compared to anything we could array against them to start the conversation off on the right track that we're we're God and you're not. Yeah, I would I would agree with that. I think that that they did display their raw power of just being able to hover over the Los Angeles sky and not be shot down. Exactly, that you know whatever was sent up just didn't have an impact on them. But of course they left this this gift. I mean to Two, uh, two unmanned well, well, When vehicles. you say gift, and you're obviously quoting Tompkins, you mean by, by allowing two vehicles to fall into the hands of the military, to allow them to back-engineer how this stuff worked. It was, well, that, that was the gift, right? Uh, yeah, that was, I think that was the, the start of the gift. That was the beginning because, I mean, I think the thing was that the, the military community, uh, you know, I think a lot of them just didn't realize just how important this UFO phenomenon was. I mean, you know, we're talking about the start of World War II or the, the U.S. 
participation in World War II. Right. For right. The, the U.S. began in December of '41, and and for them, yeah, they, the U.S. military is absorbed in the Second World War, and all of a sudden, you know, you have this fleet of UFOs showing over Los, uh, hovering over Los Angeles, impervious to this artillery barrage, and the next morning they leave. I'll tell you what, and, we're, at, we're at the bottom of the hour. Let's hold it there because I have another couple of really important questions about what happened in February of 1942. You're on the other side of midnight. I'm talking tonight with Michael Stella. We're trying, I'm trying, to go for the biggest possible picture, which isn't about individuals interacting with UFO occupants or the pilots flying saucers or, you know, being asked for cookies. Yes, some UFO occupants actually have asked for cookies from uh, people they met, farmers or ordinary middle-class uh, pedestrians. Very bizarre. Jacques Vallée talks about this in his uh, uh, very famous book, Messengers of Deception. You're on the other side of midnight. We're going to continue this because I want to get to the larger meta questions, which is, has the clock been set? Was the calendar set in motion? And now, in five weeks, with the first official government report mandated by an official public act of Congress on the UFO situation, are we about to learn some of the truth? You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month. 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, on this Sunday night. Grading slowly in the next uh, half hour or so into Monday morning here in the land of enchantment. My guest this morning is Dr. Michael Sallow, who began this extraordinary journey 
Michael, you ought to write a book called Extraordinary Journey because to go from mainstream international relations to intergalactic emissaries and the internecine politics of multicultural and racial and family species inhabiting the nearest regions of the galaxy. That's a kind of a far step, which I imagine you never in a million years thought you would ever be involved in. When did you really, when did you really realize that we're living in this bubble of a synthetic reality immersed in a much bigger, much more fundamental and critically important picture of the real reality of Earth against the Milky Way and the realities out there? That began in uh, May of 2001, and uh, it really culminated um, in, I would say, May of 2004, when I was uh, told that my involvement with the university would no longer be uh, approved, that I was actually being booted out of the university system because I persisted in my efforts to research this, that this I felt was very important and I was told that uh, continuing this research would, would threaten my career and if the major media discussed this research I was involved in, then I would uh, face consequences and that's exactly what happened. Uh, what happened? Uh, the Washington Post wrote a story about my research into President Eisenhower having a meeting with extraterrestrials at Edwards Air Force Base in February of 1954. Uh, Peter Carlson from the Washington Post uh, interviewed me and wrote a, a kind of fairly balanced story that what, appeared... What, the, what, what, what year was this that they wrote about you? Uh, this was in uh, February of uh, 2004. And they, they wrote a... Uh, a fairly objective, uh, neutral piece uh, for the style section of the Washington Post. So it was the, the front story of the style section of the Washington Post, a big story about my research into President Eisenhower meeting with extraterrestrials at Edwards Air Force Base. So you're a professor at a major university in Washington, D.C., American University, which has an awful lot of diplomats and other government officials have gone through there and gone on to very successful careers working for the U.S. government all over the world. So you're basically there, and they do a profile on you and your research on the Eisenhower ET contact story, and it appears in this most credible publication politically of, of two or three, you know, the, the Times, the Post, the Washington Times, that kind of thing, maybe USA Today. And then what happened? Yeah, well, that's right. It, it appeared, um, and at the time, officially, my position was research in, in residence at American University, and it appeared, and I was told if it cast American University in a, in a negative light in any way, that uh, my position would be threatened, and that's exactly what happened. It, it came out, and a, a month or two later, I was told that I was no longer uh, going to be associated with American University, that the that the program that I was setting up was summarily terminated, and that my position would not be renewed in August of uh, 2004. So essentially, I was punished 
for my research being acknowledged by this mainstream media uh, source, which is the exact opposite to what typically happens in academia, because in academia, especially in international relations, if your research is favorably covered by any mainstream media, you know, that's a kind of uh, so, a feather in your cap. So did the story cast aspersions on American University? Not at all. Uh, it, it was, so uh, where did the trustees or the president or whoever fired you get the idea that it was adversely affecting the university? What did they point to in print? Was there some kind of tribunal? Did you have a hearing? Could you present evidence? Did you have a lawyer? In other words, they, could they just turn around and say you're, you're fired? Yeah, essentially that's that's oh, I was told by by my superior in the university that that I was fired. My program was was cancelled, and and it was because this research that I was doing, they deemed it to be something that cast the university in a negative light. And, Even though and, the story was positive. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So they so they didn't have to offer any evidence. They could just arbitrarily forget academic freedom. They just booted you out. Uh, yeah, well, they did it in a way that was in alignment with you know the agreements that had been reached and their their standards. And I did appeal. I did appeal uh, through the university system and went to the dean of academic affairs and 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 had them kind of look at this uh, termination. And and they agreed that uh, yes, that my research into exopolitics had no place within the university system. Oh, that, no, no, that, no, no. That they they said that, that that was absolutely correct that this this is a tinfoil hat conspiracy mm-hmm. and that a mainstream university shouldn't be allowing this gosh how the worm has turned since 2004 now we yeah, have an official exactly. office of all domain anomalies in the pentagon itself okay did you call up the reporter and tell him what happened Oh, that's that's interesting. Uh, I I don't I, I I did contact the reporter, uh, but he had moved on. I mean, he I think he had done whatever he was supposed to do in covering the story, and he moved on, and he didn't show any interest in following up. Uh, so I don't remember him ever kind of like wanting. So to he find never out. thought of this as a First Amendment issue or rules and you know arbitrary you know kangaroo courts and anything like that. The stifling of academic freedom. Uh, why, did, he, why, did, why, did he the story, why did you do the story in the first place then? <laughs> That's a good question. Or, uh, or was it a setup to get you out of a legitimate mainstream university setting so the subject would suddenly be submerged again beneath the waves? Yes, I think it was probably more the latter. I, I think uh, he was probably there to kind of like encourage me to come out with this research that someone knew would not be seen favorably by my university peers and I would be booted out and, and, and someone who was in, within the university system that had a position and was talking about this phenomenon, they did not want that person in any way uh, continuing that kind of association and having well, any kind of status. On the model that there's a timetable, and I've had these discussions with Bassett endlessly because he, he doesn't believe there's any kind of a clock, there's any kind of a ceremony, no rituals, no weird, you know, um, bizarre 
numbers that are attached to the physics, et cetera. He just thinks it's, you know, whatever goes and it's just, you know, uh, bare knuckle politics. And somehow the disclosure crowd has gotten the upper hand. And I don't believe it for an instant. I think this is all on a clock. And the reason it's now coming to the fore and we're about to find out something significant is because the clock is synchronized with the hyperdimensional physics, the changing background physics, which would not allow, literally, in terms of consciousness, this to occur any earlier in recent American history. It has to be now, because now when the physics will encourage it to be fully born, in other words, it's the make no wine before its time model. Yeah, I would agree with you. I would say that clearly this seems to be some kind of timeline. And, and of course, you know, the, you, you have um, this extraordinary development in, in the latter part of the Trump administration in 2020 when uh, the intelligence community asked the uh, we're talking about the Senate Intelligence Committee within Congress asked the intelligence community to write a report about UFOs and they put it in the Intelligence Authorization Act for 2021. And, and of course, that led to this famous report that came out in uh, June of last year, which was the first time that all of a sudden, the UFO phenomenon is being taken seriously by the U.S. Congress, and it, and it created a worldwide uh, kind well, of uh, firestorm. I, is it you who said this, or was it someone else that said that basically the public report, which was like you know three or four pages of nothing, was merely a cover for the background um, uh, top secret uh, classified review that the key congressional people were exposed to? And it's that background review where the real data and the real amazing physics and the real amazing vehicles that can do things that we could never imagine on a million years under Newtonian or uh, Einsteinian laws were, were presented to the Congress. And that's why we suddenly got the Gillibrand Rubio Amendment, which when it comes to fruition in that first report in five weeks, my perception is it's going to blow the doors off. Stephen doesn't agree with me at all, of course. It's going to blow the doors off because it will have the legitimacy of Congress, of government, the Pentagon, and the stories will have a frame that they have never had in 75 years of this activity up until now. I think that would have been Richard Dolan who actually uh, said that there was a, a classified version of that uh, report that came out in June of 2001 that, that he was told a little bit about mm -hmm. in, terms of, in terms of some of the classified technologies that were being developed at Area 51 that corresponded with the Tic Tac sightings. So he, he was talking about that and of course some people believe that these tic tac sightings are man-made craft at Area 51 that uh, you know, being built by Lockheed at, at Palmdale and so but forth. Wait, but, wait, wait, but, wait, wait, wait. Why would you be performing maneuvers over the 7th Fleet, the 6th Fleet, whatever fleets they were on two coasts 
of a top, top, top secret program and letting it all hang out over a bunch of sailors, you know, and radar people and, you know, esteemed professional pilots and all of that. Why would you conduct a super special access program where thousands of witnesses in an era of social media where you can send messages and no one can trace where they come from, why would you do that as part of a human-level program? Well, I think there would be good reasons for you wanting to know uh, the capabilities of any reverse-engineered spacecraft or aerospace vehicles that you've made. Yeah, but you do that on a test range with very limited access, and, you know, you don't test a you know, a, a top secret weapon system in front of everybody. And these were well, battle that, fleets undergoing wartime simulations and exercises off the San Diego coast and off the, uh, the East coast, the, uh, the well, Nimitz and, and the Taika and the uh, Theodore Roosevelt. Well, I, I would say that they would have different levels of testing. So you would have first have your field testing at, at a remote place like area 51. And once you're, a reverse engineered craft has passed all those tests, then you would want to test it against some of your most advanced Michael, radar do you tracking. Really think that? Do you really think that? Um, well, I, I think you, when you look at some of the reports uh, of the personnel that were involved in the Tic Tac sightings, I mean, there, there was behavior there that was very unusual. I mean, that they, that, that in 2004 that they were testing some of the most advanced radar tracking systems that the Navy had put together right so so if you wanted to if you wanted to ensure that your UFOs or that your aerospace stuff that had been developed could safely fly over China and over this over the rush and over Russia without being radar tracked and without being shot down like the U-2 back in, what was it, 1960, then you, you, you probably would want to uh, deploy it in an environment, a safe environment like the Pacific Ocean off the coast of San Diego where, where the Navy was told that whatever was being tracked would not be shot at with live fire artillery. That, that was very important. So you knew Wait that the do Navy... We, do we know for a fact that that order was given? Yes, Yes, that do, that we have a, was do we have a piece of paper? Do we know from whom? Uh, yes, yeah, people that were part, who have come forward, uh, that participated in the exercises have made the point that the Navy was told, that uh, personnel were told that this exercise would be conducted uh, without there being live fire against any airborne objects. So we have trapped. a signed and dated memo signed by admirals, the secretary of defense, whatever, that says on this date we're going to do a exercise using this technology and we will not use live fire. I'm sure there is a document like ah, that. Ah, but you haven't seen it released. then. Now, all I know and all we know is uh, the testimony of the uh, personnel on board of so the USS So we're back Nimitz. to witnesses. So we don't well, have documentation. We have people purporting to know something they may not know or they may be lying. Well, see, you know, see what, you have... what I'm thinking is this. If you have a bunch of aliens or ETs showing up to basically probe the best defenses on the planet and you know you're invulnerable, going back to 1942, all right, 
then if you're doing, a, again, a, a mass demonstration kind of updated for the current generation, because there's nobody serving in the Navy that was in the Navy in 1942. And you've got a whole bunch of new terrestrial technology. You've got F-18s. You've got radar precision tracking. You've got lasers. You've got energy weapons. You've got a whole bunch of stuff that nobody could even dream about in 42. If you need to basically refresh the military's memory, this is who you are, this is who we are, and you can't do a thing about us, wouldn't it behoove us guys, the admirals, to realize it was hopeless and you don't shoot it, again, you don't tug on Superman's cape? Well, that that goes back to the uh, 1952 uh, flyover of uh, Washington, D.C., where, where Truman um, was, uh, was ordered the um, Air Force to shoot down those craft, and there was pushback, and, and he was told that, no, we, we do not shoot at these craft. And, and so... Wait, wait, Force, when you say there was pushback, from whom? Well, people within the national security system that told uh, Truman that that was not a good idea, that that had been tried in the past and that there were severe consequences, that the number of craft, Air Force craft that was shot down because they had these uh, shoot-down orders, that that led to catastrophe for the Air Force. And so they stopped. And Tim, Timothy Good's book, Above Top Secret, uh, documents that very well, that th- there were these standing orders and that a number of Air Force craft were shot down because they were targeting these UFOs flying over, over North American so skies. just like Truman was not briefed by Roosevelt on the existence of the atomic bomb, he was apparently also not briefed on the reality of the UFO situation and only found out about it when he gave orders that would have wound up with major problems, maybe for the White House and himself in D.C. Yeah, Truman's role in all of this is uh, you know, very interesting, just how much power he had. I know he was played as a, a key Well, you role know, in- he was a 33rd degree Mason, so I'm kind of wondering how much he knew and how much he didn't know. And remember, he's the guy that was talked into authorizing uh, Rickover uh, and Admiral Byrd to go to the South Pole in that 1946 Operation High Jump, which was absolutely extraordinarily bizarre and ultimately catastrophic. In fact, why don't we kind of segue, what do you know about what really happened right after World War II in the Antarctic? You, <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> you have written a very interesting book about that, and I've got some additional data which uh, we may make public at some point. Go ahead. Talk about Operation High Jump, because, again, this is an example of how Truman was convinced in a one hour meeting in the White House between Byrd and a couple of other admirals to go from he wasn't in favor of the mission to where he authorized it. Why? Right. Well, there there was a uh, Operation High Jump, and that was uh, led by Admiral Admiral Byrd, and the official story was that this was a scientific expedition to kind of like find suitable locations for future permanent bases on Antarctica. And resources and mining and oil and all that crap. And also also to do very cold weather tests against 
Soviet incursions over the North Pole because both poles have similar environments. But what we do know um, is that there was an Eastern Task Force and a Western Task Force, and those task forces uh, circumnavigated Antarctica and converged off uh, Queen Maud land, which is the precise area where Nazi Germany was had established bases and that during the uh, German, the 1938-1939 the uh, mission by Nazi Germany to Antarctica, they landed at Queen Maud Land. So isn't that interesting that uh, this Eastern and Western Task Force of um, Operation High Jump converged at that point in February of uh, 1947. They converged at that point and there was a battle between Operation High Jump, the, comprising not one but actually two naval task forces uh, unofficially. Uh, officially, there was one, the USS Philippine Sea, but according to witnesses, there was a second, ta a second aircraft carrier there that was part of that, that attack. And, um, and they lost the battle, and then Admiral Byrd, on his way back to Washington, D.C., uh, gave this interview to El Mercurio, a reporter, Lee Van Adder, where he talked about uh, the task force suffering significant losses and that there was a new enemy that had the cap capability to travel from pole to pole. Right. And then after that, he was taken to Washington and he never talked like this ever again in public. Yeah, that's right. He was told to just uh, keep all this uh, secret and he never divulged anything uh, up until I think he's uh, he I think the next mission that he participated in uh, was the uh, the actual uh, sorry I forgot the name of it but that was kind of in the mid 1950s uh, 1957 58 Operation Deep Freeze. Thank you for that. Yes, so he he was part of that. But between Operation High Jump and Operation Deep Freeze. He wasn't allowed to talk about these things, which was very unusual because every earlier, every politician. Oh, he loved talking. He, he loved the limelight more than Trump. Exactly. You, know, you, you put a exactly. microphone in front of him and Admiral Byrd would go on for hours and, you know, talk about this and that and all the personnel and yeah. all the hardships and everything. And then after high jump, he went totally silent and he did reappear, but he was really a ghost of his former self in the uh, expedition in the late 50s, which was around the International Geophysical Year, which was 1958. And the National Geographic was heavily involved in that one. And, and more significantly was that he was uh, admitted to Bethesda Naval Institute for depression, mm. uh, to the medical uh, facility there, uh, treated for depression, uh, because, yeah, this is exactly right, that he was a man that was used to talking to the public and, and having the limelight and getting a lot of national acclaim. I mean, he was on Time magazine as the man of the year, I think, I think twice. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so this was a man that was used to the limelight and expected it after completing a, a major mission. So after Operation High Jump, he was sworn to secrecy and and the things that he experienced were so monumental that he suffered depression because he couldn't talk about it did you and ever see the official film that was released on the high jump expedition in 46 47 uh, yes that was uh put out by the u.s navy and it was a total snow job well not exactly 
It was called The Secret Land. It was narrated by Robert Taylor and Robert Montgomery, two major Hollywood stars. They did the narration <clears throat> off camera. Both served in the Navy, by the way. I think they both were uh, lieutenants. They did the narration. Um, I have found some extraordinary, extraordinary ruins at the apex of some of the mountains that Bird flew over that they photographed on film from the uh, military equivalent of the DC-3s they were flying. And I wanted to get original footage, you know, actual high-res transfers of the film, which is in the archive at UCLA. And what we discovered, and I had one of my colleagues, you know, doing some of this in parallel, so we kind of compare stories. They would let us have the footage, but they are charging 20 dollars a second for the film so if you want any significant footage it costs you thousands of dollars to even get a print and they will not guarantee that it's a uh, uh, second generation so they're basically censoring the secret land where i have up on the uh, enterprise website and on the other side of midnight i've shown it several times some of the stills from that film there are ruins at the South Pole in those mountains they flew over that are as stunning and as geometric and as obviously artificial as anything we've seen on the moon or Mars. And they're right at the South Pole, accessible to anybody with modern technology, including drones. Well, definitely there something significant happened during Operation High Jump. And I think that the, the thing that is of greatest interest to the national security state was that Admiral Byrd's military expedition suffered a monumental defeat and that that was covered up and it I'll was made what, to look like a scientific mission. We're at the top of the hour. My guest this morning is Michael Sala, and we're having a very wide-ranging discussion. Obviously, if he agrees, this is not going to be the only time that Michael Sala is on the other side of midnight because we have not even scratched, put a tiny, tiny little groove in the diamond sharp surface of the cover-up of the ultimate reality of which Earth and the solar system are immersed. We're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. side of midnight.com talk radio with pictures on demand liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought join club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule filter episodes by guest or subject. 
Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio with pictures on demand. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone. It is the witching hour in the land of enchantment here in the desert. My guest this morning is Dr. Michael Sala, and we're having this uh, kind of big picture conversation on the eve of what I believe could be some very fundamental legal and political disclosures relating to this whole incredibly secret and disinformative field for the last 75 years plus called UFOs and extraterrestrial technology. Michael, let's let's talk for a minute about the technologies because given the level of technology exemplified by these vehicles, if nothing else, if they were adapted and back-engineered appropriately, they would totally transform life on earth not only in terms of war but in terms of peace in terms of everyday ordinary people uh having totally environmentally safe power supplies that could not be interrupted that would never run out that were not connected by a fragile grid but were literally point by point by point in people's basements or in apartment complexes, or in malls, or wherever. In other words, the power would never have to go out ever again, and you would never have to pay a penny for oil, or coal, or any fossil fuel. And that comes part and parcel with this decision not to reveal the presence of, as Stephen says, the extraterrestrial presence, because with it comes not only the people and the politics, and the sociology, and the cultural interactions, but there comes with it a technology, which, as Arthur C. Clarke once said, is indistinguishable from magic. How much of the cover-up do you think has been dictated by a few very greedy billionaires and oil companies to the detriment of planet Earth? Yeah, that really is a a key aspect of the whole cover-up, the impact of disclosure on the pharmaceutical and the petrochemical industry, that the technologies that the extraterrestrials have would revolutionize uh, the energy sector, would revolutionize the uh, health industry, and just too much money is made for various influential corporations that have been behind the election of every president, uh, aside from uh, Donald Trump, since um, yeah, since the early 1900s. And you can go back to Nikola Tesla when the same thing happened to him, that his technologies weren't allowed to come forward because they would threaten the, the, the beginning of, this, uh, of the standard oils uh, monopoly over uh, the energy uh, sector. So this has been going on for a long time 
and the extraterrestrial visitation has not been allowed to be revealed because the technologies would be threatening for the those major corporations that benefit. But again, if the extraterrestrials, and I want to very clearly, you'll notice I've not used except a couple of times in very specific instances, the term aliens. I've used the term extraterrestrials because my model is that most of the folks we're dealing with are really family. They're just they just happen to hang their hat on a different piece of real estate. And I go back to Neil Armstrong's famous phrase during the Apollo 11 landing. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. If you consider humanity on Earth as man in that phrase, then all the rest of humanity spread across God knows how many stars and star systems in the Milky Way, if not far beyond, they're the larger mankind so he was representing in that phrase which i don't think he created by himself i think it was very carefully written for him to again open the door just a little bit for those folks that know what they're hearing it was part of by the way he never said another word right he went to his grave without telling us what's really on the moon or what really happened etc etc so if these are little leaks here and there and ultimately disclosure is being modulated totally from upstairs. You know, look at the military prowess exhibited in 1942, and again with the Nimitz and the, and the Theodore Roosevelt. Then they control the timetable. So why, as they watch these companies plunging the earth into an ultimately irrecoverable disaster environmentally, why have they done nothing for 75 years to change the trend curve given the technology and physics at their disposal, which to them is totally commonplace and normal? Well, we know they have intervened to a limited extent to stop catastrophes on the planet. And we know that they have visited nuclear facilities and that they've actually interfered with uh, uh, the launch of nuclear weapons and prevented uh, a nuclear catastrophe. So there has been... Some wait, 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 wait. How, do, how, how do we know that? Well, we, we know uh, from the way in which nuclear weapons silos have been deactivated uh, that... Yeah, but that's a, a demonstration. Phenomenon. That's not during an actual war setting. I mean, we're looking, and I want to get there next, at this incredible situation uh, of Ukraine. And we're looking at a, a absolute mad tyrant, Putin, who invaded this country, Ukraine, to basically begin to build the, the, the Russian Empire all over again. And he has threatened now countless times. I've lost track of the number of times he has threatened all-out thermonuclear war against the West, again, with very shadowy outlines, like at what point do you transcend his arbitrary decision-making and you've done something that's irrevocable and he launches a nuke, that kind of thing. And then there's this all this extraordinary escapade going on around Zaporizhia, which is that biggest nuclear plant in all of Europe there in Ukraine, which has been shelled. Parts of it taken offline. It's now totally offline. The employees are not allowed to, to you know, keep the, the situation uh, normal and safe. There's incredible restrictions. There's, 
there's ongoing fighting, shelling going on right around a nuclear power plant. It becomes a kind of a, you know, third world doomsday weapon. And yet it appears that while all this is going on on the ground, the skies over Ukraine, as documented by mainstream astronomers who have two separate stations located at, uh, in Kiev and I guess one facility to the east, they've documented aerial phenomenon that exceed 30,000 miles per hour, which is obviously not drones or, you know, normal terrestrial battlefield equipment or gear or artillery or weapons. Somebody with a lot of interest in Ukraine is hovering over that battlefield, but doing nothing. How do we put that into a bigger picture? Well, I think that is part of the bigger picture because that that uh, astronomical society uh, in Ukraine that has been documented these UFOs, I mean, that's showing that UFOs are active in Ukraine. And right now, the Zaporizhia nuclear facility, which is controlled by Russia, has been targeted by some dark forces. Now, I would say that there's probably a, a, there is a rogue element within the Ukrainian military which is deliberately targeting that nuclear facility to make Putin look bad um, because I, I think if, if that facility uh, is destroyed or damaged in a way that creates a, a radioactive cloud that not only impacts uh, Ukraine but also the rest of Europe, that would be a disaster and it would all be blamed on Putin. So I think the... the well, wait, 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 wait. It would be blamed on whoever is shelling the power plant and if the Russians are occupying... They're not shelling their own people. So by definition, it's got to be the Ukrainians. So how would that make Putin look bad? It would simply affirm his contention on the world stage that Ukrainians are neo-Nazis and they have to be eliminated for peace to come to the world. Well, you know, I think that would be a very rational way of looking at it, that yes, uh, that the Russians are not shelling the, the, the nuclear plant because they control it, and it's being done from the Ukrainian side. But, you know, we're talking about... Well, that about... introduces the concept that maybe it's neither side, maybe it's a dark third party mm-hmm. that wants to precipitate an actual nuclear war. Because if mm-hmm. we're in embarrassment, if we're the 15,000th cousins that nobody ever talks about in polite society in the galaxy, and someone's just trying to figure out how can we get them to go away without having blood on our hands, if we do it to ourselves, if at some high-level council somewhere someone can stand up and say, well, they were just too damn dumb not to do the ultimate, you know, pulling the trigger and winding up committing suicide – in other words, are we pawns in a much larger exopolitical game whose rules nobody is even talking about? Yeah, I think we are. And, and I think that there is a third shadowy force uh, operating behind the scenes, mainly on, on the Ukrainian side, which is targeting the Zaporizhia nuclear facility. And the UFOs that are there are assisting the Russians in shooting them, shooting down whatever artillery or whatever missiles are launched at Zaporizhia to create a nuclear catastrophe. Because no one wants it. I, I think the Ukrainian leadership doesn't want it. And certainly Putin doesn't want it. Uh, but there is this shadowy force, which is associated probably, I think, with 
some of planet species that are not friendly, that are very dark, that do want to create a nuclear catastrophe in Europe. But those that the Astronomical uh, Union in Ukraine are documenting, I think they're playing a role in ensuring whatever is happening on the battlefield doesn't spiral out of control in terms of leading to a nuclear catastrophe because that's I think one of the things that is well documented that UFOs for many decades now have been ensuring that there has not been a nuclear catastrophe on the planet and they've, they've you know it's been documented that they have um, shut down nuclear facilities even shot down uh, nuclear missiles that some of the witnesses at the disclosure project talked about uh, these UFOs or the visitors well, they, shooting they, down they, you know, they, I, I've never seen shooting down missiles. I've, I've seen the turning off of launch sites to where the missiles could not be fired as a demonstration of overwhelming capability of making a nuclear confrontation irrelevant between both sides. But I know of no documented case where a missile flying in anger carrying a nuclear weapon was shot down by somebody that's on neither side. Uh, there were two witnesses in the disclosure project, uh, Robert Jacobson and Colonel Ross Dedrickson. Uh, in, they're in the disclosure project book. You can read about it. And uh, Robert Jacobson went on to become a university professor. He says that he, he took photographs of, I think it was a Nike missile that was capable of carrying nuclear weapons. And that was being tested. And it was shot down by a UFO. And then there was Colonel Ross. Yeah, but wait, wait, wait. That, that's a test at White Sands, all right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I had a uh, personal uh, conversation many decades ago with a very well-known writer who actually worked for one of the aerospace companies at White Sands. And he was, um, you know, they would kind of rotate uh, positions, and he was on the Theodolite one day, which is basically a very sophisticated telescope that was designed to track the uh, missiles when they were launched. These were V-2s and uh, uh, Viking missiles having nothing to do with the landing on Mars. This was another project earlier called Viking, which was a rocket system uh, funded by the Navy. And he said they launched missiles and they could literally watch through the theodolites, which is a super telescope, UFOs, uh, pie plate type classic UFOs, winding around in circles as the missile was flying they would literally fly all around it and you know accelerate upward with the missile as the missile was going down range uh again as a demonstration of absolute you know power compared to the primitive technology of planet earth but nobody ever reported under those circumstances missiles being actively shot down well, there, uh, Colonel Ross Dedrickson says that a nuclear missile was launched at the moon and was shot down by the UFOs. So here's one case, one of the witnesses that says that, yes, some nuclear armed missiles were shot down by UFOs. So, um, and, and there are well, others now, that... Well, now, wait, wait. There was a project in the 50s and 60s to do that. Carl Sagan, who I knew quite well, was involved in that. But ultimately, the decision was made, as I understand it, that it would be the worst possible PR stunt in the history of the solar system because it would have given the Soviets an incredible propaganda victory 
look at those warmongering Americans that are going to, you know, detonate a nuclear weapon on the on the moon's surface. So I would really have to see the documentation of anybody that says that that actually ever happened. Well, uh, you know, Colonel uh, Dedrickson, I mean, he did testify at the Disclosure Project press conference. But that doesn't make it real, Michael. It's just as somebody claiming something extraordinary that cannot be checked. See, that's why this whole field has been so incredibly limited, because we're dealing with witnesses. No documentation. You said it yourself an hour ago. They've limited all the actual evidence except in extreme cases where people have taken the initiative, like the uh, the head of the FAA that you talked about. But most yeah. people only have stories. They have no paperwork. They have no film. They have no paper trail. It's just stories. And as long well, as... Well, I would take, I would take, I would take a, a different approach. I would say someone like Colonel Ross Dedrickson, who, who did occupy a senior position within the U.S. Air Force as a colonel, and he says that uh, nuclear weapons were, were launched into uh, the upper atmosphere, one of them to the moon, and they were shot down by extraterrestrials. Now, you're absolutely correct that he doesn't have any documentation to support his contention, but, there's, but the other important consideration is that there is absolutely no documentation to say he's lying. There's nothing that says that. Yeah, but that's not the way evidence works. Remember, it's the proponent's. No, it doesn't. It's proponent's evidence to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that X is guilty. It's not X's, you know, responsibility to prove he's not guilty. No, I would disagree. I would say that an eyewitness testimony in a court of law is admissible regardless of whether that eyewitness can prove anything at all. He's an eyewitness. He says, I saw this, and that is admissible in yeah, a court of law. And the reason that in evident. a court of law we admit eyewitness testimony is because there is a penalty. It's mm-hmm. called perjury. Mm-hmm. If the witness can be proven to be lying, there mm-hmm. are consequences. There exactly. are zero consequences for any of these people making extraordinary claims with zero documentation, nobody comes and takes them away. Nobody jails them. Nobody takes away their bank accounts. In fact, the, the more out there the story, the more they may gain readership or video clicks or whatever for the most outrageous story without documentation. And then we have the Bill Tompkins uh, entry, for having read his, uh, his three books very carefully. Tompkins, who made a played a major role at several major US uh, aerospace companies from the 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s into the 80s you know kind of like a who's who of the American military industrial complex in terms of aerospace industries starting with Douglas aircraft and winding up a TRW he makes the very interesting claim that the interaction between humans and extraterrestrials involves everyday use of mind control. And once you introduce, Michael, the idea that someone's mind can be altered by an outside force, even eyewitnesses could be fed a story and they could totally believe it because the technology is there to make them believe that it happened. And in fact, they're merely being used as pawns in a much bigger 
you know, extraterrestrial political game to keep everybody off balance so nobody breaks through the secrecy curtain. You know, well, that's speculation. I mean, when no, it know... isn't. Tompkins said in his book, he gave several instances of where this event happened and that event happened, and he said categorically, and it was mind control that was used. Now, is Bill Tompkins lying, or has he been subject to the same kind of technology he is purporting to unveil? Remember um, Arthur. I, I think... Remember Arthur Clark. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. If ETs are real, if the extent of interaction with the human population of this planet is on the scale that Tompkins and others and your books purport to, to verify, then mind control has got to be part of the equation. Yeah, well, we don't want to dismiss eyewitness testimonies on the basis that they could be victims of mind yes, control we without do. evidence. Without, without evidence. proof. There is, there is no evidence that Bill Tompkins or Ross Dedrickson that we were talking about were under mind control when they made their statements concerning extraterrestrial... But it would be, it would be, it would be a technology which has no fingerprints. In other words, if you and let me let me go back to where I think this this uh, in my mind came from. Are you familiar with something called the Havana syndrome? Uh, vaguely, yes. Okay. For those that are not, beginning around the time of the uh, Trump administration, 2017, there were several instances. Now there are hundreds all over the world dealing with high level ambassadorial level personnel at our embassies in Cuba, the Canadian embassy, uh, State Department officials overseas, um, embassies in China, uh, embassies in other countries. I haven't followed all the details, but there appears to be a level of assault where measurable medical evidence, x-rays, MRI scans, whatever, of literal brain damage is documentable by medical technology on a variety of people, most of whom appear to work at some level for the United States government, either the State Department, the security agencies, the CIA, the NSA, whatever, all over the world. And this has been going on uh, since 2017. Now, The way I look at this, given, again, Tompkins' assertion that high-level ET mind control is a well-developed and used technology, I'm wondering if these later efforts, 2017 to the present, which are now reported all over the world by, again, reputable witnesses with medical data to back them up, is not our efforts, human efforts, to in a crude way, mimic the mind control technology of extraterrestrial entities. And our folks, since they don't know how the physics works, they're really botching it and they're winding up destroying people and damaging brains and, and leaving a trail of actual medical evidence. Well, I think this raises the question of doesn't this mean that the UFO phenomenon is something that belong in the social sciences as opposed to the physical sciences, that rather than trying to document 
uh, the phenomenological aspects of UFOs in terms of radar trackings and photographs, reports, that we need to look at uh, the testimonies of witnesses of these phenomena and try and gauge what is happening. Well, I don't think it's an either or. I think it's a both. And I think the psychological part of this, particularly in terms of control of, of one mind by another through an extraordinary technology, which we have no, I mean, look, the, the best we can do are drugs, all right, and, 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 you know, torture and stuff like that, incredibly crude. This, this Havana syndrome, uh, which has come up recently, uh, which I think is misnamed because I don't think it's about Cuba or Russia or, or whatever. I think it's much bigger, but that was used as maybe a test bed. I think it's a, a plausible, deniable platform to test terrestrial deep state black ops technologies that are trying in a crude way to mimic the, the um, ultimate intelligence, you know, wet dream, which is a way to influence consciousness of another human being and do it seamlessly with no fingerprints. So they in fact think they are reporting a reality when in fact it's an implanted script. Well, you know, that is a social science question. I mean, that is something that we need to look at when it comes to people that have gone through something like an alien abduction experience where that mind control is definitely happening. But, you know, when we're looking at military... No, wait, wait. When you say, when you say an abduction experience, is mind control happening at what level? Are you saying the abduction experience is real, but the subjects are mind controlled during it? by an ET technology, or are you saying that they're basically fed a synthetic reality that has no basis, in fact, in fact, is a total mind control uh, encapsulated script? That, and also you could throw in the military uh, mind control that people who have gone through a genuine physical abduction by extraterrestrials are then subjected to military mind control in a kind of secondary abduction phenomenon where they are told that this was uh, actually just a dream and there's nothing to it and that or that they are given whatever other kind of programming the military wants to make this phenomenon as confused and unclear as possible. Hmm. Okay. Um... But I would say that, you know, when we're looking at this whole kind of witness, eyewitness phenomenon, you know, whether we're talking Bill Tompkins, Colonel Ross Dedrickson, the Disclosure Project witnesses or Secret Space Program witnesses, uh, it's like, well, at what point do we like take these testimonies on uh, at face value that these are people who are who genuinely believe that they saw and experienced these events extraordinary events and uh, they are coming forward out of a genuine desire to reveal the truth without any desire to kind of monetize this in any way you know at what point do we say okay we're going to take this at face value that this is an eyewitness report that is admissible or do we take the other position that well you know these are people that are probably part of some mind control experiment that are trying to throw us off what's really happening. Well, if we're dealing with terrestrial intelligence agencies, I think that's a pretty good case because they've, they haven't from the beginning wanted to admit what's really going on. If we're dealing with the ET agenda, 
And in fact, it's probably not one agenda, probably multiple agendas. And I want to get into how many folks may be interacting with us uh, when we return. But we're near, literally now at the bottom of the hour. So let me put Michael on hold and tell you that uh, we've got one half hour to go. If you have any interesting questions that you would like me to ask Michael that I haven't thought of, and there are tons of them, I'm sure, um, our number here on the other side of midnight, if you want to get in line uh, to ask Michael a question, is uh, 917-889-8802. 917-889-8802, if you want to join the queue and ask Michael a question. And yeah, he's obviously going to have to come back because we have we have barely scratched the surface. If you go to the other side of midnight and you uh, uh, click on Michael's name, there are five books, provocative, extraordinarily titled books that have evidence. The problem is, is there documentation for the eyewitness testimony in the evidence that is presented? And I see that people are lining up on the phones, and when we uh, return, I'm going to open the lines with Michael's uh, agreement, and we'll see, we'll take a sampling of what the audience tonight thinks of uh, on the eve, maybe, of disclosure. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. The other side of midnight rolls on. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, to The Other Side of Midnight for this Sunday night, Monday morning. It is now the 26th of September, and this evening, uh, East Coast time, 7.14, NASA is going to slam a spacecraft into an asteroid and see what happens. As I said at the top of the show, some things totally discordant from the models could in fact happen means we will have to uh, draw inferences from those things. Okay, uh, Michael, we've got some callers on the line. 
couple of our uh, team members of the Enterprise Mission Investigatory Team, uh, one from what from uh, New York, Robert Morningstar. You probably know Robert, and then our uh, uh, esteemed generalist Ron Gerbron, and both of them want to, I guess, uh, either make a statement or ask you a question or uh, uh, who knows what. So you open to opening the lines. Please, yes, go ahead. Okay, let us open Robert's mic. Robert. Hello, Richard. Good morning. Good morning. Hello, Michael. Good to hear you. Uh, I've been listening to the program. It's very good. Um, I have some objections to Richard's objections. Um, Okay. How did I know you would? You know, of course. But listen, um, I know these cases very well. And there were some misstatements on your part about the shoot down. It was not a Nike missile at Los Alamos. It was an Atlas ICBM that was launched from Vandenberg Air Force Base September 14th of 1964. Three officers uh, testified to this. Uh, Robert Jacobs, who shot a, vi- a film of it uh, with a, through a theodolite, uh, the missile going up. The flying saucer, as you said, you heard about them circling around. In this case, the flying saucer wound around the missile that was traveling at 5,000 miles an hour at the time and then pulsed three beams, laser beams, at it, or I should say three times. And we don't know they were lasers. They were beams, right? Well, they were lights on the – I would say they were masers, personally, but people well, know if they – you know? That's not the important point. Hang, hang, hang on, hang on, hang on. Uh, details are important because you're talking about something extraordinary that requires okay. good evidence. Yes. Beams in the Earth's atmosphere will cause the atmospheric components, the molecules of nitrogen and oxygen, to resonate and fluoresce. That's why these beams are always blue or blue-green, but we don't know the actual energy involved and to claim they were lasers like okay, we're creating. Okay, stop there. Let me just say we're masers, you know, mass amplification by stimulated emission of radiation. The important thing is that these lights detached the warhead from the missile, made it tumble, and destroyed the missile. Florence Mannesman was a major. Robert Jacob was the uh, lieutenant who took it. And uh, Michael has referred to um, Major Diedrichson. These three men testified to this event. It takes two people in a court of law, eyewitnesses, to convict somebody of murder. And it's a disservice to these men's testimony to disparage their eyesight, their knowledge, or their veracity. But the more Robert, important thing Robert, we're talking about... Hang on, hang on, hang on. Okay. Do, do we have the film? Do we the, have the film, film was confiscated by I'm the Air Force. It's always confiscated. Without yes, it is. Evidence, of course. These are stories. And, and, and right every week you talk about things like the uh, the network over the moon. Those are stories. You know, you have very no, little other than evidence. the corona, other than the corona photograph and the full uh, picture of the um, true colors of the earth that I found. There's very little evidence of that that anybody else can see but you. Join us. Join us next Saturday. I will lay out for three hours, photograph after photograph after photograph. From an impeccable yeah, source. But I want to tell yeah. you about Einstein and Oppenheimer. It's very important. So you should listen Can you to kind it. of get? Did you have a question for Michael 
or did you have a specific point? Well, I'm here to defend Michael's position because I found you a little bit too uh, disrespectful and liking the knowledge. No, I'm talking about the shootdown of an eight, eight, that a Nike not, at Los Alamos when it was an Atlas at Vandenberg and it was an ICBM. It's not being disrespected. I thought it was. Your tone was very disrespectful. The important thing is what Einstein and, and Oppenheimer suggested to the American government on how to deal with celestial races. That was their term for celestial races that had decided to settle upon planet Earth. They wrote a five-page paper recommending different tactics that they could use to accommodate, that's the word, accommodate celestial races, plural, that had decided to settle on Earth. And the most important one, they gave four recommendations, but the fourth one that they give is the one that was adopted. And I want to quote it to you. It's a very short paragraph. They said that if they were dealing with a moral entity, the most feasible solution, it would seem, would be this one, to submit an agreement providing for the peaceful absorption of the celestial races in such a manner that our culture would remain intact with guarantees that their presence not be revealed. That, in a nutshell, is what was adopted. And that is a right. letter that was written in June of 1947. So this is before the Roswell crash. So the U.S. government was dealing with this problem and long how before do we know, Roswell. How do we know the lineage of this document? Where did you get it? Because the lineage is impeccable. It came from Dr. Robert Wood and, and Ryan Wood who have accumulated the greatest collection of official documents on UFO, UFOs and, in fact, the most important document in the JFK assassination field was the burnt memo, which they released. And, Ro, and Michael can tell you, I was the one that cracked the code of the burnt document and revealed that it was an assassination plot. And the best book... Michael, I think you've written wonderful books, but my favorite book is Kennedy's Last Stand. And so um, that's what reveals that the burnt memo referred to the assassination of President Kennedy because of his insistence on revealing the UFO reality and the presence of extraterrestrials interacting with world governments. So that, in a nutshell, is... uh, and the, the document is called Relationships with Celestial Races. And you can, you can find can it you, on academia.com. Can you send me a copy, please? I will certainly send you a copy and Michael a copy because it is time that everyone realizes that science and the military betrayed humankind. That paragraph that I just read to you, making an agreement with the extraterrestrials, basically giving them roaming rights, Ranging rights. Robert, 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 how it's do you a make a of the human race? How do you how do you make an agreement with God? God He's not God. Aliens are not God, Richard. Where do you Any get that idea? Advanced no, technology. Thank you for taking the call and Michael, I'd love to have you on my show sometime too. Great book. Kennedy's last stand. Uh, have a good right. night. Let, uh, thank you, Robert. Let, let me give uh, Michael a chance to uh, respond. Okay, let him. I'd love to hear it. Well, well I think uh, the big 
picture is what we're seeking here, and the big picture is that uh, UFOs are active in Ukraine at this moment when there is this nuclear scenario unfolding of a major nuclear power plant being targeted by some mysterious force that wants to create a catastrophe there. And, and I think that someone in, that's involved with these UFOs is providing some level of protection in addition to whatever Putin's uh, military forces are providing in terms of uh, um, anti-aircraft, anti-missile cover to protect the Zaporizhia plant because, I mean, they're conducting uh, a referendum right now in that Zaporizhia oblast to determine its, whether or not it's going to be admitted into Russia. And that's going to be, that's a foregone conclusion that they're going to uh, vote to join Russia. So he wants to prevent, uh, prevent a nuclear catastrophe in Zaporizhia. And I think those UFOs flying over Ukraine are assisting him. Yes. I would like to say well, that is true, but this will be the second time, the second time that UFOs intervene in Ukraine to save uh, humanity from nuclear disaster. It's a well-known uh, account that when the uh, Chernobyl uh, reactor started to go China syndrome, a UFO appeared over it and fired three lights, whatever they were, we don't know. But three lights were shine, shining down into the core and stopped the, uh, the critical mass from unfolding. And I'd like to remind everyone that in 2014, when the Maidan uh, demonstrations were going, a huge cigar-shaped UFO flew slow, low and slow across the Ukraine, and um, it was a bit the size of a supercarrier. So they have a great interest in what's going on in Ukraine. And, so, there well, we have like earlier, we have UFOs and we have some demons that want to uh, bring us to our end. Yeah, which so brings when, up the concept of the breakaways, which of course we don't have time to, to get yeah. into tonight. Let me bring on Ron, because Ron Gerbron waiting on the other Hello. line. Hello. Great. Ron, okay. are you there? Good night, yes, Robert. Hi, everyone. Good night. Hi. If you want to stay with hi. us, Robert, you're welcome to. I think I've got a set, pretty simple question. Go um, ahead. Hi, hi, Michael. Uh, enjoyable show. Um, it's uh, but back to the story of 1942. Uh, you two, you and Richard, brought up something I was unaware of: the idea of a couple of craft being um, sacrificed to the uh, to the natives uh, <laughs> so that yeah. they could examine them. Uh, were those craft? Because I assume there is some track. I won't get into who said what to whom and uh, what's credentialed and what's not. But from the information available, uh, did those craft carry weapons? Was that part of what they crashed and handed over? Or were they craft that were not equipped with um, meaningful weapons capability so that they could just let them examine the propulsion systems? According to uh, William Tompkins, uh, those two craft were unmanned drones that were uh -huh. part of this uh, extraterrestrial fleet that was flying. And then so they were like surveillance craft or something. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, that these weren't carrying weapons at all. And then you have and um, hang on, hang on, hang on. The thing, the thing that made them valuable, and Ron has put his finger on it. 
they exhibited anti-gravitational, non-Newtonian, non-propeller, non-fossil fuel, non-jet, non-any known technology propulsive capabilities, and the craft alone were worth their price in iridium to try to back-engineer to figure out how you levitate any mass against the gravity field. Well, that's exactly what uh, William Tompkins says happened, that those craft were then taken to various facilities. One one included the Douglas uh, Aircraft Company's uh, Project RAND, and of course there was also um, the, the the Lockheed facility that was just being set up, which today is known as Skunk Works, and they began <laughs> studying these retrieved craft back in 1942. And so that's the point that Doc, uh, Bill Tompkins has made. And we know that there have been these leaked majestic documents uh, of a correspondence between General uh, Marshall, who was the uh, Secretary of the, of the War Department at that time, and uh, President uh, Roosevelt, showing, discussing these downed aerial, uh, these interplanetary craft. And so that that supports what Bill Tompkins was saying, that these were, in fact, extraterrestrial craft that were shot down or left, and they were then studied and began this kind of long reverse engineering program that can be traced back See, to... See, here's, here's my problem, uh, Michael, with that, and Robert it wants to come back on, so I'm going to open the line. Robert, are you there? Yes, I heard your invitation afterwards, so I called okay, back. Thank right. you. Let me make my point, and then you can, you know, chime in with Ron if you want. Okay, thanks. If if the, if an extraterrestrial race is trying to give humanity a gift that they can back engineer and figure out the fundamental technology that will make them, if they continue that research and development curve, ultimately equal to the extraterrestrial race. Does that make any sense? Why would you give potential enemies, and just look at our history, Earth people are not to be trusted. Why would you give them technology that they could back engineer to create weapons that could counter your technology unless the physics on which that technology was based was so outrageously different and exotic and other dimensions, they would never in a thousand years be able to figure it out because it would be giving like an F-18 to a bunch of Neanderthals sitting in a cave somewhere in southern France 30,000 years ago. They didn't even have the tools to make the tools to make the tools to begin to ask the right questions, let alone create a copy. So this whole thing of back engineering an extraordinary hyperdimensional physics and technology I find at some level almost laughable because I know people that will not believe the HD physics I demonstrate every day with some of the experiments I've been doing, and they're very well-schooled with major degrees, and they refuse to even open their mind to the possibility that I could be right, the physics could be right, and they could be wrong. I'll let Ron go first if he wants to answer. I okay, my... I've, yeah, I've kind of got an answer. Okay, thanks, Robert. I kind of have an answer for that. Uh, the uh, Yeah, you're right. The back engineering part is a little hard to push. 
but I draw everyone's attention to, with innumerable other examples in fiction, uh, the encounter of the um, Vulcans with the Earth people when they finally got a warp drive online. And, uh, okay, think about that. The Vulcans said, ah, now they're ready. Why did they give them the warp drive? Not as a not as a graduation present, but because they didn't want them unnecessarily blowing things up with the bad with bad engineering. Oh, wait, wait, said, okay, they got to that point. We'll get them over the hump. Wait a second, Robert. Hang on, Ron. But that's a totally different scenario yeah. than we've been presented with tonight, which is super advanced ETs fly over LA, let two vehicles crash so that the military can back engineer them. There's no, our guys are doing it. This will give them the final puzzle piece to complete what they're trying to do. Oh, it's not a puzzle piece. It's not a puzzle piece. Compare, uh, here's, something that's a, here's something in the real world that compares with it. Uh, there is a certain effort going on to make sure that everybody's hatches and things like that on their space capsules of the stuff that we have now more or less match you know, you don't want to have, uh, just in case there was a situation. There's no reason why that stuff shouldn't be of a common design. It doesn't yeah, give one or the other. locking collars and adapters so that one nation on Earth can rescue astronauts or cosmonauts of other nations. Right, and even if they're if they're borrowing astronauts from one another, they um, uh, are able to. They're familiar with the with the machinery. It's that that's at work here. It's yeah. that certain things are basic and fundamental, and if you're going in the direction of but a, pr- not of a if particular, you're based on a technology in physics which is totally incomprehensible to the primitive hatch, we're dealing with. Can I get a hatch? Is a hatch, and I think it extends out from there. Okay, that's all I had to say. Argue along. Uh, <laughs> my answer to Richard's question deals with the motivation behind the gift, quote unquote, and also. When we're dealing with um, Los Angeles and uh, World War II, we know that there was more than one alien race involved, and they were taking sides. The reptilians were having uh, relationships with the Nazis, and as far as I understand, the so-called Pleiadians or the tall whites uh, favored us. So interceding on, your, on the side of the, of, of the, the chessboard, the black or the white uh, pieces, is um, pretty common sense. But as far as giving the gift, the motivation of the alien has to be scrutinized because it could be a Trojan horse. They could be giving that they would know would destroy us. You just said a brilliant thing. Yes, yes. Go ahead. Yeah, well, I think that that that's really the answer. They were giving us toys that would be, in, in, in the terms of a sinister alien race, would be like giving a kid the formula for nitroglycerin and telling them to go play in the, <laughs> in the other room. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, it could be benevolent and giving the kid uh, <clears throat> Tonka toys and Legos to be able to learn how to build something beneficial and uh, safe for human- humanity. So the motivation of the alien and his purpose is something that definitely has to be scrutinized. And um, <clears throat> I don't Michael, believe I don't trust Michael. aliens personally. Uh, well, myself. I don't either. Exactly, I do not <laughs> trust people. I stand with Dr. Seventy Turner. years, 
who Dr. for 70 Carlos plus... Dr. wrote a book called Masquerade of Angels, and she said angels go skulking around in the dark, abducting people, performing illegal yeah. medical yeah. operations, we're, and... We're, uh, we're, we're limited on time. Okay, Michael, that's fine. That's all I have to Very, say. very, very, very quiet. Yes, indeed. Right, well, I, I think the... Uh, point I would like to make is that in, in understanding what is happening uh, on Earth at the moment in terms of this extraterrestrial involvement, we shouldn't make any assumption that the extraterrestrials are uniform in any way, that there's a, there's a multiplicity of uh, extraterrestrial visitors and they have their own distinct agendas and that part of the exopolitical journey is to get as much data as we can from multiple sources Dude. to understand do you remember, pictures. as an international relations expert, do you remember the term that came out of Vietnam, that it was a free fire zone? My impression from all the extraterrestrial accounts I've read, and I've read a truckload, um, I'm being very nice about that, that Earth is a free fire zone, and almost anything goes if you can get away with it. And if there are multiple level species interactions, nobody seems to have humanity's best interest at heart. Nobody. It's all a free fire zone and every ET, you know, entity, race, government, organization, planetary system, whatever is out for themselves and they need something from us. And so they use us, but they do not operate with us as anything like equals well i think that uh, when we look at the whole you know the big picture of how the extraterrestrials are interacting with humanity there are certain rules there are certain limits well to we, do we know behavior. that have we have we seen them uh, written down yes, we do we, know that because we know that they're not revealing themselves overtly that they have these interstellar craft that are massive in terms of miles long and they don't show them so you have to ask yourself why don't they show them because the response is well if they did show them it would be game over and so that suggests that well, when a, you say game over what do you mean it would be game over for them because we would change radically to incorporate um, this it, larger reality into our current very turgid reality and we would change. Suppose the objective is to make sure we do not change. Well, what we know is that the Earth is governed by different nation states with their own military intelligence hierarchies and corporations and economic interests. And they don't agree on much at all other than to just make sure that the extraterrestrials do not reveal themselves overtly and basically reveal that the emperor has no clothes i'm waiting for a what response it, go ahead well i'm thinking that it's uh from an extraterrestrial standpoint this is much more like the uh aegis in something like jupiter ascending than it is like the federation in star trek or any, any of the, yeah well because they were an overarching police force accepted by everyone because there are always occasions when somebody has to act, you know, without it being a diplomatic matter, uh, but only when they're forced to. So they don't, they don't, they're not proactive. There's a line 
that that shouldn't be crossed because it causes trouble for everyone and everyone accepts that but you can't as was just said you can't stop individual groupings or because there'd be all of those echelons and groupings and everything else uh from doing their own business at their own pace and, but there are limits we don't know what those limits are but i i'm sure that there's an interstellar red line that they're not supposed to step over and i think it's something like that well that, that would imply some... that there is some kind of interstellar or galactic federation and that yes, the but reason not one that can tr- no control structure it was an how do you enforce, organization and how do you enforce it's a, a bureaucracy red line? how do it's you a bureaucracy enforce... How do you enforce yeah, it? How do you enforce it? They're interstellar Pinkertons, as they were at the beginning. They are almost independent of any of that. Well, that's see, what that's I'm saying. They're like, they're like, they're like uh, Michael, do you know of any studies that have been done on interstellar politics and governments and social order and the interaction between us primitives and them? And we've got uh, less yes, than a minute. It, 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 there was a study by uh, Albert Einstein and Robert Oppenheimer. Well, that's, the that one the Robert, that's the one that Robert just alluded to. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm hoping he'll but, send me a copy. I will. And, that's, that's the one. And, that's, we, and, and we have bona fides that we know this is really from those two key individuals, right? We have a paper for uh, As I said, it's from Robert we, Wood, and it's also posted in academia.edu. Those are credentials enough. And the history hmm. of, uh, of this uh, consultation goes back a long way. Uh, we, they, we haven't gotten a ton, uh, chance to talk about MJ-12 and the MJ. We will do that on the next program. Michael, I want you to raise your right hand and promise me you will come back. Uh, let's talk about that. Um, and, and definitely I uh, coming out about what's going on. Okay. And on that note, very interesting. I want to thank everybody. I'm sorry I was off yesterday. I was under the weather. So we reran the Artemis uh, 2 program. Next week, we're going to do uh, more Artemis because the moon is very important. The moon represents hard evidence of transition. So until next week, same time, same bat channel. Remember, third star on the left. Right on till morning. Good night, everyone, and watch the skies, because this week in space is going to be a Lulu. Until next week.